Lucifer Means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire Welcome everyone, welcome to the Fly Alaric and the Good Queens live stream. I am your host, Fly Alaric Snow, the secret bastard child of Alaric Stark, and Alassane Targaryen. You know, you know what happened, guys. You know what happened. Come on. We can feel the heat burning off the page. We know they had a love child, and I am he, Fly Alaric Snow. And joining me are the Good Queens. Say hello, Good Queens. I don't know about good, but I'm definitely a queen. Absolutely a queen. <laughs> I'm just going to keep the mood music on here. This is good. This is good. Keep it going. That's excellent. I'm Sanrixian, and I'm currently drawing a B. Not sure why yet, but I'm all down to talk about Targaryens. We've been brewing on Twitter some thoughts and stuff, so this should be a really fun discussion. Anybody and then else? We have, we have Gretchen Ellis. Say hello. Hello. AKA Baal, Baal the Bard. Baal, yes. Whose new video is uploading as we speak. Yeah, I updated it for those of you who have already watched it. Thank you. Yay. Some of you have even commented. But uh, I made a couple of tweaks, and so it is currently the new version. It's just slightly different. I rearranged some things and recorded a new intro and uh, added some reverb to the quotes. So now it sounds all echoey and cool. Mm. So, yeah, that should be done within the next, like, ten minutes, I think. And we have Melanie Lot 7. Hey, everybody, it's Melanie Lot 7. And, yes, I do have another essay that's about three-quarters written. We're going to get there eventually. It's going to happen. Just be patient. The people are clamoring, are they? They are. I'm trying. Trying hard. And, of course, from the Up From Under Winterfell YouTube channel, we have Maester Mary. Hello. Hello. I muted and then unmuted myself. It was very, um, it was very exciting. Um, I am working on another Bravos video. It's taken a bit because life is crazy, but I'm really excited to be here and talking about um, a badass lady today. Indeed, indeed. And we are here, of course, to talk about the new excerpt from Fire and Blood, which is I would say Good Queen Alassane is basically the star of it. I mean, Harry's is essentially a footnote, at least in this little tiny excerpt that we got. And of course, Alaric Stark is fairly prominent as well. And Alaric Stark's uh, wife from Bear Island, House Mormont, she's pretty interesting. And we've got a few interesting figures crammed into this very short little excerpt, actually. So it's going to be going to be a fun little discussion. It'll be a good jumping off point. Uh, it seems like everybody on the Twitteros is quickly looking at this thing for potential parallels to the end game because we have a Targaryen dragon queen flying to the wall on her dragon and hanging out with a Stark. So it's uh, the kind of thing that we are trained to look for for parallels. So A handsome yes. Stark. A very handsome Stark, yes. Mm-hmm. Fly Alaric, mm-hmm. as it's called. Uh, so uh, Joe Magician will be along shortly to join us. He is being a good friend to another friend who needed a favor. Uh, but I think he's going to be with us pretty soon. So we'll hold it down until Joe Magician uh, gets in. Also known as Megor Matt. 
now as of after this morning. But uh, so real quickly, let's Matt Gore. Uh, Matt Gore, Melanie Lot Seven. You mentioned that you're working on something. Let's since everybody here uh, is now content creator. Let's go around the circle and give everybody a minute to talk about what they either have just put out or are working on, because I know everybody wants to hear about that. Sure. Um, I can talk just really quickly. Probably most of you know that I put out my only video at this point, and it's about silenced women. It's kind of a timely topic. So if you haven't seen that, just hop on over to the YouTube channel. It's Melanie Lot 7. If you just type it into YouTube, I pop up. And also, I am working on an essay about the king under the mountain archetype and how it figures into the Winterfell crypts and the kings of winter down there. So it should be done pretty soon. That sounds awesome. What do you, what's the, uh, give us a preview of the king under the mountain trope and what that involves. So the king under the mountain trope is the idea that there is a king who is a strong leader and he is um, kind of like a representative of his country and he fights all these different forces. He has a close band of warriors that group around him. And then he, during some final battle, he becomes wounded or sometimes dies and is then removed to an area that's like hidden, um, sort of like an under or an underground or underworld location. And um, he is kind of in a state of limbo. He's not dead. He's not alive. But um, the idea is that he'll return at some point and fight a final war for the country that's in need. And um, there's some really interesting implications for the Kings of Winter and um, some really cool parallels. So I'm not going to give too, too much away, but I'm excited about it. Can I, it sounds a lot like, um, I'm trying to remember the protagonist dwarf of the Hobbit. What do they call him? King under the mountain? Oh, the dwarf. Thorin? Mm-hmm. Thorin? Yeah. There's actually, yeah, several. It's an inherited title in, in um, Lord of the Rings. And I yes, I actually cover that a little bit in yes. the essay. So, yeah. Can't wait. Thanks, Blue Tiger. Thank you, Blue Tiger. And then basically Aragorn would be the more symbolic king under the mountain in that he is the king in wait. And I think everybody could probably immediately see how uh, the dragon locked in ice concept is really just Martin's version of this. Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, let's not give away your episode, but yeah, we're all looking forward to that. Very cool. So what I love about what uh, some of the research that you guys have been doing is that uh, it's it's loosely, you know, has one foot in the mythical astronomy language that we've all familiar with. But really, you're following themes in the book that that are way more central than than the astronomy symbolism and that exist, you know, outside of the astronomy symbolism, like the silenced woman thing. And if I could kick it to Gretchen next um, you know, she's doing the Amethyst Empress stuff, uh, but really she's talking about this archetype of the queen who is dispossessed. And that has application outside of, you know, just the Amethyst Empress, Nissa Nissa sort of puzzle that we're all trying to solve. So Gretchen, tell us a little bit about your first uh, foray here into the world of YouTubing. Oh, yeah. So my first video, uh, I put it up earlier this week. Uh, alongside my essay. And like I said, I updated it a little bit, tweaked some things. But what I'm really interested in talking about is disempowered women in Westeros because we see that, um, I mean, literally every single female character, female point of view character that Martin uses has this element at some part in her story. She either is the oldest child or at some point is treated as if she is the oldest surviving child, including Arya, um, cause people question me about that, but like, 
including Arya, because at one point, once Sansa is um, accused of being a traitor, Arya, if Arya were the only surviving Stark child at that point, she would have become the heir because everyone assumes Bran and Rickon are dead. Um, and so by the Bol- she's treated by the Boltons as if, I mean, fake Arya is treated by the Boltons as if she is the heir to Winterfell. Um, so, and that was really stood out to me as unique and interesting because there's only one male character who has that as a part of his arc for a point of view character, and that's Sam. Um, so if it's every single female character, point of view character has this element, then it felt like Martin was doing something specific with it. So I started diving in. And then when I read the story, the Amethyst Empress, like that stood out to me as well, because if it is the root of the long night, then that means that like dispossessed women in power, like that is the root of the long night, or at least a very significant aspect of what we could consider to be the big major, major cataclysm is that a jealous younger brother usurped his older sister's power. So that's really what I'm investigating, diving into. The first part talks about uh, Rhaenyra and the Dance of Dragons and looking at the Targaryen, like dispossessed Targaryen women, because there are a lot of them. Uh More than just, yep, more than just Rhaenyra and Rhaenys. Like those are the ones people know about, but like they're all over the Targ family tree. Um, So diving into that and then like create, talking about this system of, like systemic dispossession of female heirs as compared to what we see in Essos. Because in Essos, we don't see this systematic shutting out of women in power. Um, And then my next essay, going to talk, starting with Cersei, going to start going through the POV characters. So, yep. That's that's awesome, Gretchen. Uh, I've really enjoyed um, the, you know, the the sneak peek that we got, I guess, uh, the beta version. Uh, so yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing the second one upload today. I, in particular, the Rhaenyra Dance of the Dragons mm-hmm. drama really strikes me as one that we should look at hard, uh, given given our identification of the Bloodstone Emperor, Amethyst Empress thing, either being the Azor High Nissa Nissa story itself or some sort of parallel uh, story. Mm-hmm. You know, the I mean, the Dance of the Dragons, it gives us just a direct echo of that. You know, we've got yep. a, two two dragon lords warring with each other uh we've got you know the queen getting dispossessed just like the amethyst empress was so mm-hmm. i'm yeah that's that's really going to be a fun one to dive in a little further yeah uh, that'll that'll bear following up and of course we'll get more detail on the dance in fire and blood uh which yes. we're all looking forward to because i loved uh the princess and the queen and the rogue mm-hmm. prince stories i was a big fan of those yeah those were great Right on. Uh, and so uh, from under Winterfell, Maester Mary, tell us what uh, what you're working on. You've got several awesome videos on Bravos and the Faceless Men, of course. Uh, so, yeah. So um, my next essay is really focused more on the intersection of myth and history and politics. So as with respect to the Faceless Men. So George R. R. Martin has said that he based the Faceless Men on an Islamic order of assassins. And it's not often that we get like this kind of inside knowledge from George R. R. Martin about what his inspiration for something was. Um, you know, we have the, the black dinner as an inspiration for the red wedding. Um, but I think it's really informative. Um, and I've been doing a lot of research into this order of assassins. And one of the things that you find out is that they existed alongside of the Crusades. And almost all of the knowledge that we have of them in the West um, is extremely biased. So 
it's, you know, it's filtered through this kind of the same lens that we would look at when we were reading something like Fire and Blood or the world of Ice and Fire. And I think this is a little deliberate on George's part, because I think he wants us to think about the faceless men as someone who, as an order that is using a particular perception of them to kind of hide what they're actually doing. So they uh, have a perception that they're just this paid guild of assassins. But that is in many ways potentially a cover for them to accomplish their political ambitions. Um, And that is what I'm going to be examining in my next essay. Um, And I will be not only looking at the you know real world historical referent, but also looking at some of the evidence in the text that's showing how the faceless men have positioned themselves politically um, and in some some ways kind of deliberately misled people about what their goals are. That's really interesting that you say that, Mary, because there's an obvious like absurdity in the so-called philosophy of the faceless men, which is that they treat death as this very sacred thing and you can't just kill people willy-nilly. You can only kill people who you're paid to kill. Like, what? That makes it holy or sanctified somehow because somebody came to your temple and paid you money to kill someone? Like, you're just hired assassins. And I feel like a lot of the a lot of the other stuff is a little bit of the window dressing. So it's interesting that you would say, well, this is really just cover for their political agenda. That totally feels true to me. Uh, Joe Magician, hello. Say hello. Hi. Hi, hi guys. How's it hi, going? Hi, Joe. <laughs> so I'm going to lodge a complaint. Is this the first time you started on time? Like, I, th- I thought I had time. <laughs> I think so. I, I think in the last, like, two months, this is the closest we've been to on time. I, I was driving home. And my phone sent me a notification. LML just went live. I'm like, that's impossible. It's only like 310. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a fair complaint. It's the first time for everything. Way to run on. Throw me under the bus uh, without even saying hello. That's good. Hey, Joe. How's it going, LML? How's it going? Yes. So I am am Fly Alaric uh, Snow, a.k.a. Todrick Stark. I have been, I've been, had that appended to my name, Todrick Stark. Todrick, to- to- yeah. Todrick mm, yep. Stark. No, Todrick. Todrick. No. I'm, the, I'm the bastard son of Alaric and Alison because we know that you know. They definitely had a couple. There's something going on there, and so I am their bastard son, Fly Alaric Snow. I'm a little cooler than my dad. Uh, I shit more than once every twelve years, and <laughs> I'm, I'm super hip. Uh, are, wait, are you saying that shitting is cool? <laughs> I'm saying it's cooler than not shitting. Goddamn right. Yes, I am saying that. It is cool to be regular. <laughs> <laughs> not hey, uh, Matt Robar says in chat, a wizard is never late. That's true. He I was here exactly, exactly what I meant to be. Yeah. To be. <clears throat> Robar is actually pretty on point today. He is good. He points out that uh, Alison went... Uh, followed a path of white to gray to black when she went to White Harbor to Winterfell to Castle Black, which is pretty cool. Uh, I was so. also I was thinking of um, Billy Madison, where she said the old grandmother says like peeing your pants is cool. So is that now your catchphrase? Shitting is cool. I don't know if it's a catchphrase. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if it's a catchphrase, but it's definitely true. I think uh, if you start so. doing that, Raven, uh, ravenous reader might have. Uh, might come. We might get more of the cesspool if you yeah, start saying more that. All the time. The we'll get, we'll get a flood. About it. 
We'll get a flood. You can mute friends that we can do about it. I really don't want a flood of shit. So we're gonna need we're gonna need a shop vac for the chat is what we're gonna need. And by the way, we're all making flood jokes because poor Maester Mary's uh, basement had just a little bit of water on the floor this morning. Nothing too big, just a little bit of water. It was just a husband malfunction. It's okay. Just a husband malfunction. (laughs) Yeah, you know. Sometimes you run the washer after hooking it up fully uh, to the to the hoses and <laughs> let her rip. So, in any case, uh, yes, there's that. So we've got said that. Oh, Joe, tell us uh, what you're working on, buddy. What's the last? You have um, you haven't put one out in a few weeks, have you? No. Um, must be due. A little inside baseball for all the starry wisdom people. Uh, I've gone back to school, so my ability to produce things as quick as I want has gone down. But the one I'm working on right now is, uh, I don't know how many of you have heard of my Waymar Royce theory about why he was killed. Mm-hmm. I'm currently redoing that one, um, rewriting it because it was garbage when I was reading it back. <laughs> That'll happen. It was like three, four years ago. So I'm doing that. Um, I'm going to get my 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 uh, my co-writer on that one, the one who originally did it, Mr. Woodhouse from Destiny the Game fame, to help me out with that one. <laughs> And then after that, at some point, me and Shakespeare of Thrones are going to talk about the three witches and the um, all the other fun stuff that goes along with uh, witches in A Song of Ice and Fire. The Mother Maiden Crone? Uh, yeah, somewhat. Does, do they weigh as much as a duck? That is an important question we're going to get to the bottom to. Excellent. Also, also do they sink or do they float? Like oh churches. My God. And very small rocks. Apples. Exactly. Wood. <laughs> she turned me into a newt. Uh, there's a question from Tubbs1971 about, is Waymar mistaken as Jon Snow theory? Yes, that was my theory. That's the one I'm going to be redoing. That's the one, yeah. That's the one I came up with. Does that mean I get to draw Waymar? That is. I have to send you an email with what I need you to draw. <sighs> oh, my gosh. Lucy, <laughs> are you here? Do you hear this? This is what he does to me. Anyway. More things. I, I, feel I, confident, things. I feel confident that the five of y'all can hold it down for like 30 seconds if I need to. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. I was hoping for that much. Uh, oh, but yes. yes. No, Joe, that sounds cool. I'm Obviously, that's a really cool theory for everyone. You know, all of us are tuned into the whole parallels thing. Waymar Royce is an obvious last hero parallel. Jon Snow is an obvious last hero figure. Uh, so I think at this point with all the thinking that we've done on those kinds of things, you could probably go back to that one and mine some new gold, I expect. So I'll be looking forward to that. And I'm sure everyone else will be. It's, it'll be a good one. All right. So um, let's go ahead. And uh, what I'd actually like to do <coughs> is, uh, is go ahead. And read. <laughs> what? Can I say what I'm doing? Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. San- Sanry. She's all about, come on. I'm okay. such a jerk. No, you, you, for, you overlooked your own hand. Matt showed up and it got distracting. Blame that's Matt. usually what I do. Speaking of hands, I did notice that that's a very dainty goblet that you have there in your giant hands. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? You bought this thing and I thought it was going to be like a full goblet. I was going to be able to hold it like this. And it's just like, nope, it's like a little cup. Uh, it's, it's, like, a, it's the Weirwood resin cup that HBO is now selling. I do oh, like the, the face on it. That's pretty cool. That's it is pretty cool. cool. Unfortunately, the cup itself is comically small. Hang on a second. This is how big the actual... That's like a six-ouncer. This is about one cup of liquid. 
It's oh. a shot glass. So, so I'm six foot one, six foot. I forget which one. And my hands are huge. So you should drink out of it like that. Just like, just hold like the insert and like, I think it's great. Maybe it was made for hobbits. It was Maybe. made for people not named me. <laughs> it was made for people my size. Yeah, it was made. It's Sanry size. It's Sanry size. Fun size. Okay, so anyway, what I'm doing, and I actually have cool stuff to announce. That's why I wanted to interrupt Lucy. If I didn't, I wouldn't have bothered you, buddy. Um, but I wanted to announce that pretty soon in my web store, as soon as I get prices, we're going to have a coloring book. We're also going to have a Night's Watch shirt. And a Sansa, a dark Sansa shirt. And I'm doing something called an Inkology, or an ink. I'm trying to combine anthology and ink. So if anybody has a way or suggestion. No, that's it. Inkology, no, that's inkology? it. Okay, yeah. So of um, all of my black and white work and doodles, which you'll be able to purchase in kind of like a book format. And they're going to be numbered and signed. So there's only going to be about 100 of those available. Ah, so I wanted to give everybody a heads up on that. I'm going to also, be first in line. Yes. Also, we're doing test prints for the Mythical Astronomy t-shirts right now. So everybody who is waiting for one, make sure you send your information to David if you have it. And then we will get on printing those and I will be mailing them to you. Exciting! Yay! Nice. That's all really exciting. Um, so exciting. just... So a coloring book? There was a lot going on there. A coloring book? That's really fucking dope. A coloring book? Um, I'm going to, if you approve, we'll, we'll talk about it later, include some of our fun things like the Wayward Submarine and just the absolute. Okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, there'll be, there'll be a lot of live stream doodles in there. And Kyle Lisi, for those of you that are friends, are fans of Azora Hype. Cool. I've been on his channel a couple times and we had an ass crack in and Carthulu will be in there um, Kerberos, so all of your favorites, all of your dank memes made right here <laughs> with LML and Sanry. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tubbs, Tubbs 1971 in the chat says, and there's much rejoicing. Hey. <laughs> Hooray! Hey. Yay! That's cool. That's awesome, Mary. Uh, uh, Sanry, so, yeah. It's okay. We're like all M's. You have Matthew, Mary, Mallory, and Melanie. Yeah, and, I know. And Gretchen. And Gretchen. Well, there's a silent M in front of the G. Yeah, Gretchen. 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 I'm Scottish now. Fedora. <laughs> I've not seen the ass cracking. That one sounds promising. I'll post it on Twitter again. It's uh, basically Kyle's butt tattoo that he has to get for something. I don't oh, remember. No. Let's get back on subject. I'm done uh, talking. Well, what, is the, what image are you using for the Dark Sansa? The Dark Sansa, it's actually something that I just completely came up with, which you're going to very much appreciate, because it has to do with Batsa. What, what did we come up with her name? Bat-Sansa? Yeah. 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 I, yeah. And oh, by the way, you might want Inkthology if you want to get That's good. Yeah, to emphasize the anthology. Otherwise, it's just like the science of ink. Yeah. Inkthology. Thank you, buddy. I knew I could count on you. It was there. It was there. It was there. As is tradition. So, um, you guys, I can, I think I can read this excerpt, right? Am I going to get in trouble, or what do, you, what do you guys say? Can I read it? I don't know. It's so long. Like, you just want to sit here for like forty minutes while you read the entire thing, dude. It's like fucking it's five minutes. I know. I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't see why not. Yeah, I'm just going to go for it, it, man. Just yeah. Do it. Do yeah. It. If YouTube takes do down it. my channel again, it's no big deal. I have a second channel. I'm ready for it. Oh, I'm LML. I have a second channel. Mm-hmm. 
Like it's an accomplishment. I could make five channels. Screw you, Elmo. <laughs> By the way, everyone should go subscribe to the Between Two Weirwoods channel if they haven't already. We've already done our first live stream over there last week, and we'll have a bunch more coming. Uh, Between Two Weirwoods with a number two. Don't spell it out. You won't find it. Use a number. All right, here it comes. Here it comes, guys. Fire and Blood excerpt. Several years had passed since the king had last made a progress, so plans were laid in 58 AC for Jeharis and Alisane to make their first visit to Winterfell in the north. Their dragons would be with them, of course, but beyond the neck, the distances were great and the roads poor, and the king had grown tired of flying ahead and waiting for his escort to catch up. This time, he decreed his king's guards, servants, and retainers would go ahead of him to make things ready for his arrival. And thus it was that the three ships set sail from King's Landing for White Harbor, where he and the queen were to make their first stop. The gods and the free cities had other plans, however. Even as the king's ships were beating their way north, envoys from Pentos and Tyrosh called upon his grace in the Red Keep. The two cities had been at war for three years and were now desirous of making peace, but could not agree on where they might meet to discuss terms. The conflict had caused serious disruption to trade upon the narrow sea, to the extent that King Jaehaerys had offered both cities his help in ending their hostilities. After a long discussion, the Archon of Tyrosh and the Prince of Pentos had agreed to meet in King's Landing to settle their differences, provided that Jaehaerys would act as an intermediary between them and guarantee the terms of any resulting treaty. It was a proposal that neither the king nor his council felt he could refuse, but it would mean postponing his grace's planned progress to the north, and there was concern that the notoriously prickly Lord of Winterfell might take that for a slight. Queen Alisane provided the solution. She would go ahead as planned, alone, whilst the king played host to the prince and the archon. Jaehaerys could join her at Winterfell as soon as the peace had been concluded, and so it was agreed. Queen Alisane's travels began in the city of White Harbor, where tens of thousands of northerners turned out to cheer her and gape at Silverwing with awe and a bit of terror. It was the first time any of them had seen a dragon. The size of the crowd surprised even their lord. I had not known there were so many small folk in the city, Theomor Mandalay is reported to have said. Where did they all come from? The Mandalays were unique amongst the great houses of the north. Having originated in the Reach centuries before, they had found refuge near the mouth of the White Knife when rivals drove them from their rich lands along the Mander. Though fiercely loyal to the Starks of Winterfell, they had brought their own gods with them from the south and still worshipped the Seven and kept the traditions of knighthood. Alisane Targaryen, ever desirous of binding the Seven Kingdoms closer together, saw an opportunity in Lord Theomor's famously large family and promptly set about arranging marriages. By the time she took her leave, two of her ladies-in-waiting had been betrothed to his lordship's younger sons and a third to a nephew. His eldest daughter and three nieces, meanwhile, had been added to the queen's own party with the understanding that they would travel south with her and there be pledged to suitable lords and knights of the king's court. Lord Manderley entertained the queen lavishly, at the welcoming feast, an entire aurochs was raised, and his lordship's daughter, Jessamine, acted as the queen's cupbearer, filling her tankard with a strong northern ale that her grace pronounced finer than any wine she had ever tasted. Manderley also staged a small tourney in the queen's honor to show the prowess of his knights. One of the fighters, though no knight, was revealed to be a woman, dun-dun-dun, a wildling girl who had been captured by the rangers north of the wall and given to one of Lord Manderley's household knights to foster. Delighted by the girl's daring, Alisane summoned her own sworn shield, Jonquil Dark, 
and the wildling and the scarlet shadow dueled spear against sword, whilst the northmen roared in approval. A few days later, the queen convened her woman's court in Lord Manderley's own hall, a thing hitherto unheard of in the north, and more than 200 women and girls gathered to share their thoughts, concerns, and grievances with her grace. After taking leave of White Harbor, the Queen's retinue sailed up the White Knife to its rapids, then proceeded overland to Winterfell, whilst Elisane herself flew ahead on Silverwing. The warmth of her reception at White Harbor was not to be duplicated at the ancient seat of the kings in the north, where Alaric Stark and his sons alone emerged to greet her when her dragon landed before his castle gates. Lord Alaric had a flinty reputation, a hard man, people said, stern and unforgiving, tight-fisted almost to the point of being niggardly, humorless, joyless, cold. Even Theomore Manderley, who was his bannerman, had not disagreed. Stark was well-respected in the North, he said, but not loved. Lord Manderley's fool had put it elsewise. Methinks Lord Alaric has not moved his bowels since he was twelve. Oh, oh, oh. Hey, uh, Melanie, would you like to uh, do the second half of the reading? Do you have the link handy? Her reception at Winterfell did nothing to disabuse the Queen's fears as to what she might expect from House Stark. Even before dismounting to bend the knee, Lord Alaric looked askance at her grace's clothing and said, I hope you brought something warmer than that. <laughs> then, he proclaimed, then he proceeded to declare that he did not want her dragon inside his walls. I've not seen Harrenhal, but I know what happened there. Her knights and ladies he would receive when they got here, and the king too, if he can find the way. But they should not overstay their welcome. This is the north and winter is coming. We cannot feed a thousand men for long. When the queen assured him that only a tenth of that number would be coming, Lord Alaric grunted and said, that's good, fewer would be even better. As had been feared, he was plainly unhappy that King Jaehaerys had not deigned to accompany her and confessed to being uncertain how to entertain a queen. If you are expecting balls and masks and dances, you have come to the wrong place. Lord Alaric had lost his wife three years earlier. When the queen expressed regret that she had never had the pleasure of meeting Lady Stark, the Northman said, She was a Mormon of Bear Isle and no lady by your lights. But she took an axe to a pack of wolves when she was twelve, killed two of them and sewed a cloak from their skins. She gave me two strong sons as well and a daughter as sweet to look upon as any of your Southron ladies. When her grace suggested that she would be pleased to help arrange marriages for her sons to the daughters of the great southern lords, Lord Stark refused brusquely. We keep the old gods in the north, he told the queen. When my boys take a wife, they will wed before a heart tree, not in some Southron sept. Alisane Targaryen did not yield easily, however. The lords of the south honored the old gods as well as the new, she told Lord Alaric. Most every castle that she knew had a godswood as well as a sept. And there were still certain houses that had never accepted the seven, no more than the northmen had, the blackwoods in the riverlands chief amongst them, and mayhaps as many as a dozen more. Even a lord as stern and flinty as Alaric Stark found himself helpless before Queen Alysanne's stubborn charm. He allowed that he would think on what she said and raise the matter with his sons. The longer the queen stayed, the more Lord Alaric warmed to her, and in time Alisane came to realize that not everything that was said of him was true. He was careful with his coin, but not niggardly. He was not humorless at all, though his humor had an edge to it, sharp as a knife, 
His sons and daughter and the people of Winterfell seemed to love him well enough. Once the initial frost had thawed, his lordship took the queen hunting after elk and wild boar in the wolf's wood, showed her the bones of a giant, and allowed her to rummage as she pleased through his modest castle library. He even deigned to approach Silverwing, though warily. The women of Winterfell were taken by the queen's charms as well, once they grew to know her. Her grace became particularly close with Lord Alaric's daughter, Alara. When the rest of the queen's party finally turned up at the castle gates, after struggling through trackless bogs and summer snows, the meat and mead flowed freely despite the king's absence. Things were not going as well at King's Landing, meanwhile. The peace talks dragged on far longer than anticipated, for the acrimony between the two free cities ran deeper than Jaehaerys had known. When his grace attempted to strike a balance, both sides accused him of favoring the other. Whilst the prince and Archon dickered, fights began to break out between their men across the city, in inns, brothels, and wine sinks. A Pentoshi guardsman was set upon and killed, and three nights later the Archon's own galley was set afire when she was docked. The king's departure was delayed and delayed again. In the north, Queen Alisane grew restless and waiting, and decided to take her leave of Winterfell for a time and visit the men of the Night's Watch at Castle Black. The distance was not negligible, even flying. Her grace landed at the last hearth, and several smaller keeps and holdfasts on her way to the surprise and delight of their lords, whilst a portion of her tail scrambled after her. The rest remained at Winterfell. Her first sight of the wall from above took Alisane's breath away, her grace would later tell the king. There had been some concern how the queen might be received at Castle Black, for many of the Black brothers had been poor fellows and warrior sons before those orders were abolished. But Lord Stark sent ravens ahead of her to warn of her coming, and the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, Lothar Burley, assembled 800 of his finest men to receive her. That night the Black brothers feasted the queen on mammoth meat, washed down with mead and stout. As dawn broke the next day, Lord Burley took her grace to the top of the wall. Here the world ends, he told her, gesturing at the vast green expanse of the haunted forest beyond. Burley was apologetic for the quality of the food and drink presented to the queen, and the rudeness of the accommodations at Castle Black. We do what we can, your grace, the Lord Commander explained, but our beds are hard, our halls are cold, and our food is nourishing, the queen finished. And that is all that I require. It will please me to eat as you do. The men of the Night's Watch were as thunderstruck by the Queen's dragon as the people of White Harbor had been, though the Queen herself noted that Silverwing does not like this wall. Though it was summer and the wall was weeping, the chill of the ice could still be felt whenever the wind blew, and every gust would make the dragon hiss and snap. Thrice I flew Silverwing high above Castle Black, and thrice I tried to take her north beyond the wall. Alisane wrote to Jaehaerys, but every time she veered south again and refused to go. Never before has she refused to take me where I wished to go. I laughed about it when I came down again so the Black Brothers would not realize anything was amiss, but it troubled me then, and it troubles me still. Very nicely done, Melanie. Thank you, thank you. Uh, lots of compliments for your reading in the chat here uh, amidst the boob talk that I accidentally set off. Uh, so, Way to go, man. Yeah, I know. He stepped stepped in it easily. Anyways, uh, yeah, so, gosh, uh, 
where to start with all of that? Quite a lot going on in that like eight minutes or so of action there. I guess let's let's go ahead and and start with the last thing there. The dragon flying can't get over the wall. That seems like the obvious cherry to pluck there. So let's go with that. Joe Magician, you came last, so let's let you go first. I don't know why that makes sense, but go ahead. Also, did I think oh, that I just love magical systems and weird stuff like that? Yeah, um, it's kind of up your alley. This is my alley. So that was really weird <laughs> that um, Silverwing would go to the wall, but not over it. And it's especially when contrasted with the show where Danny and her dragons just went over it, just like no problem. That's kind of strange. And some people have been speculating that some shade George threw at the show, like, oh, no, 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 no. That couldn't happen. Of course, he didn't tell anybody of that. But this is the first time this has come up. And it's it's really interesting in sort of reconfiguring how you think about the wall. I think most people have the assumption that the wall is meant to keep the others penned north. That it's to keep them from coming south. But we're seeing a dragon, not an other, unable to go south to north. So it may be more of a general barrier against really, really magical things. Or like, um, I was comparing it to the the DMZ between North and South Korea, where it's like, literally no one's allowed to go through this no matter what, if you have like certain kinds of weapons, almost like a magical, like metal detector sort of thing. Like the, <laughs> the wall and the Night's Watch are the uh, fantasy TSA. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> that is the most mundane explanation or comparison. For I know, right? <laughs> get in line, get in line. <laughs> They're sort of waving them through. Are you pre-checked? All right, you can go under the night fort. <laughs> You've been selected for additional screening. You have magical items. <laughs> I, th- I think even more interesting than that, though, is if dragons and others are both being prevented from going over or under or through the wall, then that sort of implies that they're working from the same kind of magical basis, where I think a lot of people... Have, the, have an idea that fire and ice magic are separate and they're different. And this would, one interpretation would be, no, they're not really that different. They work on the same principles and the wall is blocking both of them, which is a really interesting way of thinking about it, or at least a, almost a confirmation of that idea. Yeah, I'd say it definitely leads us to this back to the idea that ice magic and fire magic maybe aren't that different, uh, which we already got a huge clue about that at the wall, of course, when Melisandre says that it's a hinge of the world. It's obviously made out of ice, and yet it makes all of her spells stronger, too. And she uses exclusively fire magic, which tells you there's some sort of common mana or power or something uh, that can probably just be channeled through different mediums. That's always how I've looked at it. And I'd say this is Yet another, uh, yet another brick on the wall, brick in the wall for that idea. Well, obviously, it, there it brings up a really great comparison to Blood Raven's cave and the ability, like the whites can't go into the cave in the same way, like the dragons can't pass the wall. Um, and I've been wondering for a long time whether or not the wards are um, go both ways. Yeah, symmetrical. <laughs> Yeah, they're symmetrical. So, like, if there were dead inside Blood Raven's cave, they couldn't get out in the same way that the whites who are outside can't get in. Like, that it's a barrier that goes both ways. And so that would, if that's true, that would fit for the wall. Like, the others can't come south, but the dragons can't go in. It's a barrier that prevents, like, 
and entrance on like both sides. You just can't pass it either way. And you think about this me. There's also Storm's End, like those the spells that ward Storm's End probably weren't designed specifically for shadow babies. Mm-hmm. Mel just says no shadow can pass, and you'd think that the others being white shadows probably couldn't pass either. Right. Yeah. We also have um in the in the Hollow Hill in the Riverlands, we know that they can't use fire magic um inside of the Hollow Hill. So that you can't perform like Melisandra or uh, Thoros or Barak couldn't perform a um, like a flame reading from inside the hollow hill. So that's no, not, not, not inside the hollow hill. It was on top of, of the ghost of, of high heart. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they but did resurrect Barak inside the inside cave. There. But it's an example of a ward that is preventing magic from being used in multiple directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the other thing that we know about the wall specifically is that it blocks the connection between wards and their animals. So we know John loses ghost um, Mm. when they're on opposite sides of the wall. Now that doesn't prevent, you know, this is a difference from uh, a contrast with Silverwing. It doesn't prevent ghosts from crossing the wall, but Mm. it is some kind of communication barrier, which to me speaks to the fact that there is something different happening with maybe dragon magic than with war I think that's for. I think that's definitely sure. I mean, definitely on the table. Uh, direwolves, as far as we know, are naturally occurring things in Westeros. Whereas there's hints from the World Book that dragons were made, that they were manufactured either by the Great Empire of the Dawn or the Valyrians. In the same way that we have this understanding that the others were kind of manufactured by the children. It may be like magical construct things can't literally pass through it. That could be explanation that would work with uh, two two different theories about where they come from. It's also super interesting that the wall it's sort of it implies that its creation was meant not as a prison that like this literally was like maybe not like a truce but like a ceasefire where it's like nobody's going either way. We're just going to stay on our sides. Dragons you stay over here Others, you stay over here. We'll work it out over 10,000 years. Whoops, they forgot to do that. Now, Mm -hmm. Joe, I've got a question from Shadow Fox who sent in a super chat, which, by the way, is a great way to get your question answered. Asks, uh, how did John get a white past the wall in season one? Uh, How do we think that happened? Because the white wasn't animated? Is that what? I think it has to do with how the whites are controlled, where... um, from my Whisper Jewels video and the live stream with Mary and Melanie, where it's it's implied from his previous works that they're controlled kind of like puppets. They don't act they're not actually like reanimated in the same sense that Barrick is or that John probably will be in the books. Where okay. perhaps whatever whatever kind of warging or skin changing or puppet magicry can sneak through the wall maybe, but not not an actual resurrected being or well yeah that could be an explanation but i think that <laughs> he has a really good point there that mm. little thing that the white going through the walls the white's going through the walls reanimating and attacking really throws a wrench into many many theories about how the wall actually works well it's a cool it's a cool time delay thing but i wonder like you could probably drag a dragon carcass across the line but maybe it couldn't fly over you know <laughs> um, <laughs> One of our mods asked the question, if you put a dragon on a catapult and you fired it, would it just like 
<laughs> splat against the top? Would it bounce yeah. off and come back? Be like, like in Dune, in Dune, it hit the shield and just like you know. right, right. Is it is it like a physical shield, or are we talking about some kind of like magical force field? I keep thinking about it like a force field, almost like magnets, where if you're trying to put the two like ends of a magnet together, it's just not happening. Um, and just I have this mental image of the wall functioning as almost like a fountain, because like if you look at magnetic fields, they they um, are kind of like a. They make a mushroom. It's a mushroom. They make a mushroom. Oh, no. (laughs) But no, I I just um, am thinking of it in that regard. Like um, maybe it's it's like a repelling force in that way. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I I think it brings up interesting questions, too, about how the ward on the wall is going to break. Um, It's not going to happen necessarily in the same way as the show. Um, the show analog, uh, is, we have the Night King touching Bran in a dream, which allows him to break into Blood Raven's cave. We're not sure if that's going to happen in the book or how that's going to happen in the book. But I, I think there's a lot of interesting questions. You know, when we ask what happens when you try to throw yourself at the ward, it then brings up these other questions about how will the ward be broken. Um, so I wonder if we'll actually see the Horn of Winter bring down the wall. Um, which also brings up questions about where is Dragonbinder, um, and and maybe there's maybe what will happen in the show, it, it, it's in the books, will be something that actually breaks the ward spells on the wall will happen before it physically breaks. Someone had also asked a question like, what happens if you bring Dragonbinder beyond the wall? Will that enable the dragon to? I don't know, but yeah, it's just. It's it's good questions. I think um, although we're kind of like spinning our spinning up all these questions and like that, Eliana on the Maester Monthly cast, we did an episode on this already, and she threw some cold water on a lot of these theories. I thought that was in a in a very cool way. Uh, a lot of these are built on assumptions. Like we're assuming Cold Hands is physically unable to go through the wall, and that like Whites can't walk through them. But I don't think we really know for sure why Cold Hands doesn't want to join Bran going through the wall. Maybe as a mission, like it, it's important to to remember where your assumptions are coming from as we go through this. Because well, he actually lot, does say yeah. that he can't do it because he's dead. But to your point, we don't know if that's if he's lying. If, if, if it's right. true, yeah. So, well, and it and it may be that that Cold Hands and the Whites are different forms of magical constructs and one of them might be more less likely to pass through the wall than the other like if if cold hands is more along the lines of say a green zombie which is you know or like Beric Dondarrion who is more of a reanimated person than like a flesh puppet then it may be that like reanimated beings can't pass but a flesh puppet might be able to so I think that I think it's a good point to like question our assumptions but also I don't really know that we have any reason to not trust cold hands at this point I, about that specific thing. I I can't see any reason why he would lie about not being able to pass. Like at this point, if he had just said, uh, I have other things to do. Like if, if, if he really did have other things to do at a different mission, why not just tell Bran? That's always my question. Like what does, what would cold hands gain by lying? Um, but I mean, that, that would get us off into the weeds. I'm just, I'm just saying like, there's, mm-hmm. Cold hands may be something different than white. And so yeah. there there's a reason why maybe cold hands couldn't pass through the ward and maybe a white could. 
So let's go back to the, that's a good point, uh, and we'll have to see, but let's go back to the dragons themselves. So obviously the dragons crossing the wall, I mean, the end game is going to pit the others versus the dragons in at to some extent. I mean, it's probably not the only thing that's going to happen in the conclusion, but at some point we, we do have to have others and dragons fighting. So does this mean basically the wall has to come down before they can fight each other or what? Well, you okay? Sorry. I'm not, I'm not sure because this is just sort of a question beyond, beyond the physical part of the wall, like we were talking about like force fields or whatever. What about sideways? How, is this like a ring around the top of the planet we're talking about and the wall is just like where it comes from? Or is it only like literally up and down above it? Because there's also things like Gorn's Way, which mm-hmm. maybe that allows you, if you could walk a dragon through it, would that work? I don't know, maybe. And so Robar Baratheon in the chat is is saying, you know, it's quite possible that the the root of the magic in the wall is is in the weirwoods, uh, the night fort weirwood organism and stuff like that. Um, there's also obviously the whole dragon locked in ice symbolism suggests that there there could be a black stone wall under the ice wall. That's an old idea that I've always liked. You know, it could be either fused stone, you know, Great Empire of the Dawn creating the first wall out of few stone or maybe even some oily black stone if we're really lucky. Uh, but yeah, those, those are all good questions. I tend to think the wall's going to come down before they fight each other anyways um, because the wall coming down, in my opinion, will happen when the new moon meteor attack happens, which will be the fall of the new long night. And that's basically got to happen before the others come out to play anyways. Um, so yeah, I, and I like the idea of the others coming south first and then the, the conflict happening, like, you know, maybe closer to Winterfell or something like that. But what do you guys think? I don't hate the idea of... I, I'm intrigued by the idea of Dragonbinder being able to make a dragon cross the wall. Because I think if there were a magic that would be able to counter the, the ward on the wall, it would be Dragonbinder. Um and so I think it would be interesting if you had a dragon cross the wall controlled by maybe Euron, right? And that triggers the wall falling, as opposed to it being the Horn of Winter, right? It's the wall falls because, or the ward on the wall is broken because this dragon crosses the wall. I, I don't think there's a ton of support for that idea, but if you were going to kind of speculate about ways for a dragon to cross the wall based on this, I think that would be... I think that would be an interesting one. Do you think the guy that? Do you think that the wall's gonna fall before a dragon crosses it? Yeah, that's yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Makes the most sense to me. Yeah, Julie Beth Styles says I think the wall coming down doesn't have to be all the ice breaking, just all the magical electromagnetic current being interrupted. Then the mm. others can burst through and march in. That's a cool concept. Interesting way to think about it. Yeah, it also works with um, something that we talked about during my Whisper Jewels live stream, where I proposed that the wall itself is alive with all these souls of the people that have been in it. If if you if you somehow find a way to remove them from the wall, then there's nothing left possibly holding them back that it's like a psychic kind of barrier sort of thing so that could be maybe what the horn of winter does it like breaks the ability for things nearby to hold souls that normally would it wakes uh, up from the earth yeah. i wanted to uh that, that's a good point matt i wanted to bring up a earlier q a um <laughs> i've got some good ones i'm saving lucy don't worry um 
Viseria asked, uh, she was like, so Aegon, Visenya, and Rhaenys never went behind the wall and they conquered, or beyond the wall and they conquered Westeros? And I was pretty sure they didn't. I think they made it to the wall, but that's a good question. I don't think they went north of the Neck. No, they didn't actually, no. Mm-hmm. Right. They, cool. they took they took uh, Torrin Stark's um, surrender. I think at the Trident. Oh, you're right. Yep. Yep. So yeah, no, they wouldn't. They didn't cross ever. Who wants to see I, some silly drawings? Like to thank W. Heron for the super chats. Also, Stephen Stark sent in the Ritual Six 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 super chat earlier, and uh, Lady Shar sent in a super chat and asked to get on the waiting list, Sanry. So make sure uh, make sure Lady Shar. I think she was talking about the limited edition. Oh, the waiting list? Yeah, yeah, as soon as they're live, it'll be all over Twitter and everything. Don't worry. Well, you guys will know. Everybody will know. Yeah, and guys, this is a pretty good um, day to ask uh, questions. If you have questions, obviously, somewhat tangentially related to the uh, the section that we just read, that'd be great. But this is a good day for Super Chat questions, so feel free to send them in if you have a question. And, okay, so we got dragons crossing the wall. That's definitely pretty awesome. Uh, but there's a lot there's a lot of other things to talk about here too, both in terms of symbolism and in terms of not symbolism. So gosh, where do we even start? Um, Can we talk about Alaric and his constipation problems? <laughs> we can. I, I suppose we can. All right, let's dive into some other stuff too. We need to get a PKJ asking some questions about how that relates to <laughs> poop symbolism. Do you guys want to see uh, the help me out here, John Gold Dark or the Red Spear Wife first? Or the, the Spear Wife first, rather? Spear Wife. Or, aren't spear you going to draw them okay. fighting each other? Ooh, fight scene. two for one deal. Yes. Yes. Fight scene on a day where I'm not feeling good. Oh, you're lucky. I love you. I'm always raising the bar on you, Sandra. Sorry about that. Let's go. Let's go. So the constipation, this is actually a good, uh, <laughs> this is a good intro to the, to the last hero symbolism. This story is full of last hero symbolism. I'm sure you guys caught some of it. So Lord, <clears throat> Lord Alaric, and I think Alaric probably is the right one. So uh, Lord Alaric, he hasn't moved his bowels since he was 12. That's because when he was 12, he was turned into a green zombie and green <laughs> zombies don't poop. That's what that means. Um, And obviously he wasn't really turned into a zombie, but we have certainly wondered if the last hero uh, stolen other child uh, is the same person. So here's the potential scenario. At the beginning of the long night, the Night King takes power. And of course, this is my headcanon that Night King or a previous version of Night King existed during the long night, of course. So he takes power. He's making others with Night's Queen. Uh, some, some, somebody steals an other baby, right? Like, like we traced out, uh, if, if the long night lasted, uh, a generation or something, I, I think a lot of people think it has to be at least a dozen years. You know, the night King also was said to rule for 13 years. So I've always, in my head, I always think 13 years is, is a good number for the long night. So the idea of a stolen other baby being taken at the beginning of the long night, growing up to be about 12 or 13 and then becoming the last hero makes a ton of sense to me because the last hero characters that we see are very young. Bran and John. Think about their age. Um, Waymar is also very young. He's a little older than that, but he's young. And there's the running theme of this sort of child hero. You know, like think about Rob Stark was like 14 or 15. So I think Alaric not moving his bowels since 12, this is last hero, the 
last year of symbolism because Alaric is, of course, a variant of Aldric and Eldric. So this is this is um, Eldric Shadow Chaser naming. I mean, I, that was the first thing I noticed. You know, I, I made a point of tracing out all the Elrics and Eldrics in Stark history. We've got um, Edric Snowbeard, another Edric Stark, and an Elric Stark. So this Alaric Stark is basically just another one, and he was described as being cold uh, when they when they met him. So this is an icy Stark, much like Eddard or other uh, you know Eldric Echoes, like Eldric Snow, like Edric Snowbeard. So that's that's who this guy is to me. He's twelve. So what do you guys think of that? Um, I will say that Stannis, I think, was thirteen when his parents died. Mm. So that's an interesting potential correlation there because, I mean, as many people have pointed out, Stannis and Alaric have a lot of personality, uh, similar personalities and descriptions. Absolutely, um, yeah. So it is, I just went to go look that up because I thought I remember that he was roughly around that 12, 13 age. And yeah, nice. he was like 13 years old when uh, his parents died. and that's- Died in a storm on ships and then drowned in the sea by Dragonstone. Very nice. Very yep. Nice. So... I think that's I think that's really interesting, and I think maybe fitting fit with what you're saying about like, yeah, being. And then, of course, uh, Jaharis and Alisan had 13 children. Who found that nugget earlier today? Who was that? Mallory, it was me. It was oh, me. nice, nice, good job, Mallory. Yep, 13 kids for Alisan and uh, Jaharis, and of course, the whole idea is that the last hero and his 12. Uh, green zombie companions, they're all children of the Weirwoods or children of the Weirwood goddess because they're resurrected by the Weirwood goddess. That's the idea. And we have a great example of that in the um, Mormont wife of Lord Alaric, who uh, kills, she takes on a pack of wolves when she was 12 and kills two of the wolves, skins them. And in the next sentence, Lord Alaric says, she also gave me two strong sons. So the two Stark sons are immediately paralleled with the two killed and skinned wolves. And so you've got this 12-year-old weirwood goddess figure, that's, that's how I see her, basically killing wolves and then giving birth to new wolves. And that's just the weirwood goddess with the zombies being killed in front of the tree and then resurrected as Night's Watchers. So there's just, like I said, tons of green zombie and last year's symbolism going on with that pair. What yeah. about the bear symbol? Well, the Mormons. Like, how does I, that tie in? I have Sorry. so much to say about this. Oh my god! Go gosh. for it, Melanie. Go for it. All right. So I was thinking about how the bear ties into the wolf thing, and I was looking for just in the for I, I don't even know how I'm going to put in the, this in order. Um, so I feel like it's all jumbled together, but. I was looking at the idea of the Mormont women being skin changers because there's all those references to the the males saying that, oh, you know, I slept with a female bear and it was a Mormont woman. Yeah. Um, there's that whole idea. So, like, there's the idea that they're skin changers. And then you have this unnamed, oh, like, it drives me crazy that this woman does not have a name. Like, please, somebody name her. Like, George. Come on, George. Come on, George. But anyway, she needs a name. Um just thinking that she killed the wolves, like you said, when she was 12, which is last hero math. And then, like you said, in the same breath, George is saying that she gives birth to these sons. And um, to me, that is kind of showing the power of a woman to give life and take life. And there's the whole idea of the womb tomb and the Kali goddess um, that's kind of floating around her. And it's also 
talking about like the skin changing in the sense that she's taking these skins, she's wearing these skins, which is kind of like skin changing. And I think that putting the, the womb tomb idea in conjunction with the skin changing is kind of showing us about maybe Nissa Nissa being a skin changer. Um, now what was the other thing I wanted to say? Um, she also makes a transition from being warm and alive and hot blooded enough to kill wolves to being cold and dead and entombed. And that kind of shows me a transition from a, a fire woman, fire lunar woman to a cold lunar woman, an ice moon woman. And, um, also the fact that she has a daughter, um, I don't know <coughs> how much we've talked about this during a live stream before, but, um, the idea that perhaps Nissa Nissa was an inherited position, um, and a, like a moniker, just like Lord or Lady or King is a, a title or just a name. If Nissa Nissa is just a name, it would be interesting to me if she um, basically passed on her name and her skin changing ability and such to her daughter. But I feel like I downloaded a lot of stuff there. What interests me, yeah. yeah. What interests me about what you were just saying is that the two strong sons are clearly paralleled with the two wolves, but there's no correspondence to the female to the daughter which makes me wonder if there's something going on there about like a child born before um before Nissa, Nissa was sacrificed because like as um LML was saying what you have with like killing wolves that become like human children is that transition it's the green zombie thing where you have like something that was alive that is like reborn in some sense through the weirwood net um but the daughter is not reborn. The daughter isn't talked about in this passage as having like nothing was killed in order for the daughter. So it just makes yeah, she's me outside wonder. that cycle, right? Yeah, she's reborn. outside of the cycle. Mm-hmm. So it makes me think about whether or not potentially that is talking about the idea of Nissa Nissa having like a child prior to the sacrifice, prior to everything going on there, and that being a daughter, because you have this whole line of like female heirs of like mothers who give an inherited position to their daughters. We don't see it in Westeros, but we see it outside of Westeros quite a bit where you have like a mother-daughter pair that are talked about as like you have the mother figure and then the daughter inherits her position. Yes, so I think it goes right along with what you were saying. Like the Manderleys and the Mormonts, right? Sort of. Um, potentially. Not I haven't made... Yeah, I mean, I think I the mean, Mormonts are probably the best what we have because most of the Mormonts we know about are women. Yes. Like, most of them, the significant number of them are women, which is different from every other house in Westeros. We usually know only like the fathers and sons and maybe some wives and maybe a daughter here and there. But for the Mormonts, it's almost always women that we know about with the Mormont family. And I think that's significant, especially because of the she-bear thing, because I have my own thoughts about what that imagery is going for. Um, Another thing that I wanted to bring up in conjunction with this is the idea that this unnamed woman had wolf's blood because we talk about Lyanna Stark, Lyanna Stark, sorry, having wolf's blood and that, and Arya also having wolf's blood. Well, this unnamed Stark wife had literal wolf's blood on her hands. And um, to me, you know, like that whole idea of her being a really strong, badass woman goes along with the wolf's blood and she was also a mormont and there's also a name link that works out really well we don't know her name but what did i say 
um, just the looking at the name of Lyanna Mormont. Lyanna's named after Lyanna Stark, and Lyanna Mormont is a bear. So you've got a wolf and a bear, both named Lyanna. So there's kind of like a link going on there. I think I think the Mormont is basically the same as Stark in terms of symbolism, and we see John. He's using a Mormont sword that's been turned into a Stark sword. You know, Lord Commander Mormont is basically his surrogate father, very much a father figure at the wall. Um, and then, yeah, the Leanna, Leanna Mormont, Leanna Stark, she's, you know, whether or not, you know, she has the wolf blood officially, she sure acts like it. I mean, raise your hand if you've killed a wolf with an axe at the age of 12, uh, you know. That brings up an interesting question about whether or not both of those are being killed have- dragons. Because you have Alisan, you have Alisan Mormont, and now you have an Alisan, we have Alisan Targaryen. Oh, that's, well, that's just a clue about Fly Alaric uh, Snow, uh, Fly Alaric of Winterfell Nibbany, I should add. Because, of course, all the Alaric and Elric names are a shout out to Elric of Mel Nibbany, as you guys know from the Blood of the Other <sighs> series. Joe McWizards, are you raising your hand? Do you have something to say, buddy? I was saying that I had killed a wolf with an axe when I was 12. Oh, okay, yeah, no, no one believes but that. I, um, I do have something else to say about this uh, that um, that I thought was really interesting about the characterization we got from this unnamed Mormont woman is that she killed the two wolves, skinned them, and then turned them into cloaks. And then that that's an idea that George has played with quite a lot in his past uh, from the story in the Lost Lands and the story skinned, uh, the skin trade, and I, Mel, I mean, uh, Mary has told me this also comes up in Dying of the Light, where you can skin a werewolf, put on the skin, and then you you be, start becoming a werewolf too, even if it's not in your blood. It's a way to steal magic from somebody else. So, a Mormont woman wearing a start uh, a wolf cloak over time would eventually start to become like the wolves herself, and that that's actually a, a plot point of these is that. It starts off just being able to be like, I'm just going to be a werewolf a few times, but eventually, much like we like people think with John and Ghost, when he's going to go into Ghost and come back and become like more savage, this is a thing that happens with these other stories where you start becoming the wolf in your daily life, the it's wolf's very, blood, as it were. It's very similar also to Bran and Jojen's warnings to Bran to not stay in summer for too long or else he'll disappear into summer. Absolutely. It's a very shamanistic concept for sure. Yeah, I was going to say um, it comes from the tradition of shamanism and it's a very ancient and found all across world mythology that if you wear the skin of an animal, you inherit its power. That's um, I'm sure Amanda would like to fight me about the origins of werewolves, but she's not here. But yeah, <laughs> that's one of those um, one of those things wearing the skin of a creature. It's like skinwalkers. Are you familiar? Yeah. Yeah. So go ahead, David. You're going to say something about shamanism? I was backing you up. No, that was it. I just all had to oh. say. That's what I, it was. I also had one little weird thing to say about that. The, the tradition of wearing bridal cloaks where the husband puts his quote-unquote skin on his bride in order to make her become part of his, his family is probably a very, very ancient thing that they used to do, which maybe had practical applications once that have gone away, but the practice hasn't left the society. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's definitely, at the very least, it's George giving us a, mag- a unmagic, you know, a magic sanitized version of that whole concept for sure, yeah. It's also usurpa- Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, it's also usurpation because yeah. a, lot of, a lot of these women who are, um, at least a lot of the women we see in the story who, like, where we're, who specifically talked about with the bridal cloak are heirs, Kat, Sansa, 
Um, so by the male wrapping his skin and family around her, he's in some sense like stealing her. Absorbing claim. her. Yeah, he's absorbing her and in some sense stealing her claim. Like Kat is no longer a Tully. So she is no longer potentially an heir to the Tully household the way she would be. Now she's a Stark. She no longer belongs and she's no longer in the line of succession. Same with Sansa. Like, yeah, at least that's part of what I think is going on there. It's like taking their identity almost. They're per- yep. Yeah, they're... And yeah, yeah. Yep, that's what, yep. Put $5 down on the fact that it's probably a real people's cloak, a people skin cloak that the Boltons put on their wives, which oh, is definitely. super uh, kind of creepy idea. Uh, gross. Yeah, but it's probably Please, true. We all thought you were the, the nice one, Mel, the sweet one. <laughs> <laughs> the Boltons skin thing is really weird because the Starks aren't actually werewolves or they aren't anymore, so... Like, if they're skinning these people and wearing them, are they just trying to steal skin changing in general? Like, I'm not sure what they're getting out of it. Or they're just gross and weird. Oh, so check this out. Uh, Isabel Harper is pointing out that the marriage ritual is actually reversed here with the Mormont woman making a wild cloak and giving it to her husband. Or at least sort of by implication because she's making the cloaks and then giving her, her son wolves. So that's, or her husband wolves. That's a pretty cool observation. So and of I- course... the. Go ahead, so go ahead. I was just going to say, I think this is, I've been wanting to talk about um, Stark warrior women, and I think this is a good segue for it. Um, so I think there's a lot going on throughout this excerpt about gender roles. And like one really interesting comment is that the way that um, Alaric introduces unnamed woman is by saying she was no lady which is something that Arya would say, right? And and that goes hand in hand with this idea that Arya and Lyanna and these women had the wolf's blood, right? And so I think it, it creates this image of a Stark warrior woman um, who is, and I think Isabel's comment goes really well with that, kind of inverting what we would normally think of as happening in a marriage, Um, The other thing that ties in with that in this passage is the Manderleys fostering a wildling um, who then becomes this, you know, um, amazing warrior woman. Um, And we we see this in the north um, in in the form of Lyanna and Arya. But now as we go further back in time in Fire and Blood, it seems like it's a more common thing. So not only are we creating this, you know, archetype of a Stark warrior woman as possibly related as, as um, Melanie was pointing out to uh, Nissa Nissa, right? She may be the original Stark warrior woman, the original wolf's blood, right? Um, but we also are seeing how the further we go back in history, the actually the less rigid the gender roles are in the North, Right. We go back and we have this example of uh, of a warrior woman who is a wildling kind of spear wife who's allowed to be at court, which is not something we would even see in the present timeline. So I, I think that's all really interesting. And in addition to creating the idea of a Stark warrior woman is, is maybe showing us how over time that's something the North has lost. Um, that someone like Liana or Arya should have a place in Northern society, but they've lost it because of the influence of the Seven um, and, and just like political changes. Yeah, and House Mormont being on the outskirts of the North has like more of an identity to this tradition. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. 
I also like the idea, you made me think of something, Mary. I like the idea of, um, we talk about Nissa Nissa um, possibly being an inherited title and something very cyclical in that. Um, and it just brought to mind the idea that we have like this idea of a stark warrior woman that's a lot like Arya. And yet the her daughter, what is her name? I'm so sorry, I forgot. Alara is described as being sweet as any Southern woman. And what if she's more of the Sansa type? And what if we're getting a cycle of warriors and then charming political people going? I just thought that was something that popped in my mind and I thought it was interesting. Mm. That's really cool, Mel. That would be interesting. If we get that echo like all the way in Fire and Blood, I would be like, I owe you a Coke. (laughs) And so, and one of the main echoes that people were quick to notice is Queen Alysanne with her sworn shield, uh, Jonquil Dark, the uh, Scarlet Shadow is probably a potential echo for Sansa Queen in the North with a sworn shield named Lady Brienne, is it not? Oh, I thought you mean Sandor Clegane? Uh, I mean Lady Brienne. Oh, oh, I hope so. I would would love to have that. That would make me so happy. Mm -hmm. That would make me so happy. It almost reminded me of the TV show when Brienne gets to Winterfell and has a playful little duel with Arya. Because Arya is almost like the wildling spearwife in this uh, equation. Mm-hmm. You can see yep. that happening for sure. Yeah. One other thing that uh, I don't know when we're, if we're going to move on. Uh, I really enjoy talking about this. That I wanted to bring up was a conversation I had with Painkiller Jane on Twitter earlier this week about specifically the she-bear symbolism. And one of the things that I think is going on with that is that um, we see with things like the bear and the maiden fair... This is where it all came from, was the Bear and the Maiden Fair, where we have, um, and that corresponds to like giants, where you have talk about like a giant man and a like diminutive woman, um, and how that parallels the idea of like a human man with a child of the forest woman. Um, With everyone talking, you know, we see it in the story about how like small women having children of like large men, it's probably going to kill them. Um, like Artis Aaron in the Vale is one of those characters where it says that he has a child of the forest wife who died giving birth to his child, um, which I think is very similar to this idea of like, so giant with a human is the same as like a human with a child of the forest, that there's that kind of like symbolic echo going on there. And that like the, that can be shown as like a bear and a person that like a bear and a, and a woman is the same thing as like a human man and a child of the forest woman. And so when I see she-bear, like because of that, when I see she-bear, what I see is like human-child of the forest hybrid because you basically have a bear woman, someone who is both a bear and a woman, someone who is both like human and child of the forest, which I think is why we always have, why we have so many Mormont she-bears and we yeah, don't absolutely. have as many like bear men because... What's important about the she-bear is that they're a hybrid of some kind. Yeah, totally. And the female gets that across. And then one of the Mormont she-bears is half-child, Daisy, right? Yeah. And then the other thing is that pretty much all the bear mythology ties to this idea of being a guardian of the woods, very much like a stag or like the green man or like the elves. They are the defender of the forest and also sort of a benchmark of like how the forest is doing. Uh, So they are a good avatar of the forest itself. And you'll mm-hmm. notice the Mormont bear is a black bear on forest green. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of what's going on there. And I'm just 
summarizing a lot of more complex bear mythology. Yep. Which, is, is it Painkiller Jane who's done a lot of the bear uh, stuff? Uh, I don't. I don't know about that specifically. I just know that she and I. Oh were no, talking. Sweet Sunray. It's Sweet oh, Sunray. Sweet. She's okay. yeah. She's done a lot of cool bear essays. Uh, if one of my moderators uh, could dig up the links to that, it's definitely recommended reading that you guys would enjoy. That will sort of, if you're interested in the Mormont stuff, like this is definitely the thing you need to read. Is Sweet Sunray's bear research? So yeah, painkiller. Uh, see if you can uh, hop mm. on that phone. Thank you. My mods are the best. I was also going to say that um, a lot of that centaur inversion-like symbolism is also shut off very prominently in the main series. That's how you see Rob Stark in Danny's vision. That's how Melisandre sees Bran, a boy with a head turning into a wolf. So George definitely wanting you to see that all over the place. And also the idea of Valyrian sphinxes, which are actually inverted, where it's the body of a, of a sphinx or a dragon with a person's head on top of it, which is but, interesting. Yeah. Which is the same as the harpy, because the harpy has, yeah. like, the body of a bird. I mean, with breasts, I believe. But primarily the body of a bird with the head of a woman. Um, so, yeah, we see a lot of that, like... any Basically, anytime I see a human-animal hybrid, I'm like, that is human-child-of-the-forest hybrid language right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that's kind mm. of the important thing for A Song of Ice and Fire. That's where the rubber meets the road on this. And I've got the sweet ice and fire sunray... Links dropping in the chat. Thank you, everybody. Uh, that's, I mean, you guys know, I think I've mentioned Sweet Sunray a few times. I mean, she's really high-level stuff. It's definitely stuff that any myth head would enjoy. Um, so that's super highly recommended. If if you haven't read that stuff, uh, consider that like a shiny present under the tree waiting for you. So uh, with that said, uh, just circling back, uh, Painkiller Jane, uh, a while ago, when we were talking about Jaharis and Alisane having 13 kids, she mentions that the 13th child was a winter child, quote-unquote, named Gale. So a winter gale, like a winter storm. So this fits in very much with all the Eldrick Shadow Chaser people, because if you remember, Edric Storm uh, is a big one, and uh, Jon Snow has a lot of the snowstorm symbolism. Um, and then you go like uh, to that last, what was the last paragraph in this one? It says... The men of the Night's Watch were as thunderstruck by the Queen's dragon as the people of White Harbor. And of course, uh, Silverwing is a silver and white dragon. So there is some snowy storm, snowy lightning symbolism going on. Uh, and then the paragraph before that is another uh, mythical astronomy symbolism line. It says, as dawn broke the next day, Lord Burley took her grace to the top of the wall. So House Burley's sigil is a white dagger on a field of blue. So that right there is white knife, white sword, dawn symbolism. So at dawn, as dawn broke, the next day, Lord Burley of the white sword sigil took her grace atop the wall, which is like a white icy sword. And her grace herself is a dragon person with a silver dragon, which is like a white sword. So there's like... Four layers of white dragon sword symbolism going on in that one sentence. And the next sentence is, here the world ends, he told her, gesturing at the vast green expanse of the haunted forest beyond. So it's, you know, just George being consistent with that world ends symbolism and language that's always attached to the wall. Uh, so again, this is basically the ice moon apocalypse prophecy right here that he's giving us, saying the world ends when dawn breaks and uh, we have white swords and, uh, you know, on and dragons landing on the wall. And then the men of the Night's Watch will be thunderstruck. So 
Ice Moon Apocalypse. There you go. I'll be quiet now. Somehow I knew you were going to work that in. I don't know how, but you got it, man. Everybody, everybody take a drink. We got Ice Moon Apocalypse. And vitamin water. Now we're hitting all the marks here. Yep. Uh, so that, thanks I to Painkiller Jane just for yep. that. Uh, that Gale stuff is good, right? Oh, gosh. It, I, I mean, you haven't even looked at like, I just looked up Gail. Uh, Gail was a daughter who was simple-minded and sweet. She was her mother's favorite. She was uh, abducted by a singer who got her pregnant, and then she committed suicide by drowning herself in the Blackwater Rush. Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. Ah! I know. I was reading. Because I thought I had remembered that Gail was one of the, like, simple-minded Targaryen daughters. So that's what I went looking for was like, I'm pretty sure Gail is one of the ones that they describe as being like, whatever that means, whatever simple-minded means. Um, There are a couple of Targaryen daughters who are described that way. And then I looked up and was reading about it. I was like, oh my gosh. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot. Thanks, Painkiller Jane. (laughs) That's absolutely nuts. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that's that's why it's always fun to do this kind of research. It's like once you start pulling on a thread, it's like, oh, 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 ah, it's a gale of symbolism. Well, and it was Gale's death that led to Alice to Alisane's death. It was like it, like Gale's death broke her heart, and she died within a year of Gale dying. And then that also broke Jaehaerys's kingship because at that point, Barth was dead, Alisane was gone, and the High Towers start sneaking their way in as Jaehaerys slips into into dementia. Yep. Yep. Wow. So that's now that we've blown our brains out with symbolism. (laughs) Let's let's go ahead and switch over to the more. Uh, sort of story-based stuff here. There's a lot of angles of symbolism there. So we've got, or not symbolism, but themes that are going on here. So we've got the displacement of female power. We've got uh, the high towers and sort of insinuating themselves in, like you said, after uh, Jaehaerys and Alysanne's death. There's the question of how much Jaehaerys really was the conciliator, or was it really Barth and Alysanne? You know, because we can see Alysanne is a very skilled politician, so uh, Joe, why don't you uh, get that uh, started for us here? All right, so pick one of um, those. And- I'll, I'll go with the the three heads of the dragon of Jaehaerys's kingship. He's called the conciliator. That's largely for his ability to heal the schism between the Faith and the Targaryens after Magor was being the literal worst for quite some time. And what what we're being shown in this little excerpt is that Jaehaerys is trying to heal the this the schism, another schism between the two um, the two ambassadors or princes or whatever they are from Essos, and he's having trouble. But he has Barth with him. This is Barth is still in play at this point. But it's Alisane that's gone, and all of a sudden this this conciliatory thing isn't going so well. But you see an Alisane way up north, and she's doing fantastic. She doesn't even need. Harry's. She is bringing people together. She's making friends out of guys that are negging her when she lands on her dragon, which Alaric, what are you doing, man? And it sort of goes back to, I think a lot of people have this idea that Jaehaerys was like a King Solomon figure, that he was the wisest, that he did everything on his own, but then we're told, no, Barth was like a legitimate genius who was right about everything, and then we're seeing from Alisane that she is like the most charming, politically skilled person like that we've seen in quite some time. So Jaehaerys' main abilities may have been more in recognizing talent and elevating it than actually being particularly good at being a, a like super king sort of 
identity. Like he's he's not like a Which mythical like great like, thing. Like that's perfect. I mean, that's what you should do. Like you don't have to be good at everything. If your wife is a badass negotiator and politician, then that may have exactly. even figured into his decision to be like, oh, we'll just let Alessane go. I'll show up later. It'll be fine. Like that shows a pretty high level of confidence in Alessane. So probably he already knew that that you know she had certainly already established that role. I would think at this time. I also thought it was very interesting that what we hear from Jaharis versus Alisane in this excerpt, they're really um, shown in contrast with each other during this excerpt. While Alisane is totally willing to go without her knights and her retinue and go to Winterfell where she knows it's going to be proms, she's like, yeah, I'll just jump on my dragon, I'll take care of it. We hear from Jaharis, no, he, he doesn't really want to go anywhere without everyone around him. And he decides to send ahead the rest of his retinue, which is basically Alisane. So he's like, you, you go take care of making sure everything's good when I get there so I can just kind of rubber stamp it, which is very interesting. The, the thing that um, I, I think is really interesting is that in this excerpt, we have Alisane making really good diplomacy with the Starks. Um, but one of the things that we know from the world of Ice and Fire is that you know, either Jaharis by himself or Jaharis and Alisane end up making the decision to give the new gift to the Night's Watch. And what do we know about that from the world of Ice and Fire? That it made the Starks mad, um, that they didn't like that. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that we have this great piece of Alisane's diplomacy that seems to be unwound afterwards. So I'm, I'm interested um, when we get the full fire and blood to see how that decision was made um, and, and whether or not it was Jaharis, perhaps, that um, made that misstep. I would say for sure that there some, some wires were crossed, especially because we know later in his career, Jaharis had his quarrels with Alisane, the quote-unquote quarrels, where essentially she like divorced him for a few years and then finally came back after their children begged them to reconcile themselves. Oh, that's so sad. But uh, I, I mean, mean, granted, she had good reason to because he was, he passed over. I mean, she didn't like the fact that he passed over their granddaughter in succession. Yeah. Exactly. Can you imagine being Alice and you're like, wait, I gave you the North. I made all these houses like line up behind you with my charmingness and you're telling me our granddaughter can't be a monarch? I have right. 13 kids for you? Yeah. Right. One of my favorite things is because it says in the world book that her response was basically to tell Jaharis, if you don't think women are worth as much as men, you don't need me. And then just like left him alone for a while. I was like, good for you. I love you. Good for you, honey. I mean, she's the best. She is. I love her. Sorry. (laughs) Babe Queen Alisane. Alisane. So it seems like a lot of the decrease in uh, female power in the Targaryen line kind of traces to the loss of dragons, somebody observed. And it, it is kind of an obvious thing. It's like if the queen has a dragon, she's not eas- as easily locked in the maiden vault. Now, is she? Gretchen? Uh, counterpoint. Counterpoint. Not to say that's wrong. I think that's a really good point. Uh, Visenya is the, o- is the eldest. Visenya was older than Aegon. Right, it's not it's not absolute primogeniture. However, they it was she was a lot more like a co-ruler like Alisane was, right? As opposed to later queens. 
Yeah, I'm not. I have seen the point made that um, the Dance with Dragons shifts from like the co-ruler mentality to um, the queens not having any power. I think one could make that point. The only thing is, like, the only two co-ruler situations we have are Aegon with Visenya and Rhaenys and Jaehaerys and Alysanne. Those are literally the only two examples, even in the early Targaryen dynasties that we have. So I'm not really sure that we can, that it's fair to say like, oh, there are all these co-rulers prior right, to right, the right. dance and there are none afterwards. Co- I'm like, there are two. Sure, like what's cause and what's effect. Um, interesting to note that those two were the most successful Targaryen reigns though. Yep. Long, prosperous, peaceful. I mean, there was almost 50 years of Aegon's reign and damn near like 70 or 80 years. Girl, with good, please be quiet. <laughs> with with uh, good queen uh, Jaehaerys and Alicent. So uh, that's, uh, yeah. Yep. What do you know? Sorry, I was breaking in with that. I thought I was muted. It's okay, <laughs> mom. It's okay, mom. But feel free, Gretchen, feel free to uh, elaborate. I know you've done... Uh, you know, not just on that specific point of the women having dragons, but just the the overall trend of uh, female power in the Targaryen monarchy. Oh, um, it is. I mean, as I mentioned with with Visenya, like Visenya being the elder sibling, and yet it was Aegon who was placed on the throne um, in conquering Westeros. Is we see that pattern repeated over and over and over again, where um, we have a few mentioned like female heirs who are disempowered. Uh, Rhaenyra and Rhaenys are the ones everyone talks about because we have uh, Rhaenyra, who's the half-year queen, um, who started the dance. And then Rhaenys, she's the one that um, her disempowerment is what led to the second quarrel with Alysanne and Jaehaerys. Um, And she was the queen who never was. And yet for each time we have one of those named female heirs who's passed over, there are multiple where you you only really know that you have these like silently passed over Targaryen princesses. If you go into the genealogy and you look at the birth order and you realize that like, Oh, um, like, um, Rainey's even wasn't even the first passed over like female heir for Jaehaerys and Alysanne. Like after the death of his firstborn son, Aegon, that the rule should have passed to Alyssa if they were going by absolute primogeniture because Alyssa was the second born child. She was older even than Aemon, who was Jaehaerys' second named heir and older than uh, Baylor, who was her husband, who was the third named heir. So even when Jaehaerys had passed over Aemon's daughter Rhaenys to be queen after him, like Jaehaerys had already bypassed his older daughter uh, his who was his second born child, and we see this quite a bit. Um, so it's it's a it's very much a running thread within the Targaryen dynasty that older sisters are always passed over in favor of younger brothers or sometimes an uncle, um, whether it's named and specifically called out that way or not. Like the history records all of these um, silent women who are just like silently disempowered and passed over in favor of their younger male siblings. And one of the most interesting ones was the queen that never was. Yeah, that's uh, Rainey's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, she was, um, her father was Aemon, who was Jaehaerys's second born son. And when Aemon died fighting pirates, um, like it would make sense that as the, as the firstborn child of his named heir, that she would become the heir. And Jaehaerys just 
says no for whatever reason. And then um, eventually Rainey's actually fights on the side of Rhaenyra during the Dance of Dragons. Um, and then she has this really, really epic uh, mythical astronomy battle with Aegon II, and it's pretty awesome. She's pretty cool. Rain, Rain, I think Rainey's is a lot like her grandmother, Alisane. Alisane. I think they have uh, a lot in common. Yeah. And I think that um, the Darklands seem to be consistently doing the good other thing, where they join the Kingsguard like others, but they have this dragon symbolism, and they end mm-hmm. up fighting for uh, the Blacks, like you said. And also we see Alisane, uh, who seems to be a hot dragon when she goes north, because she melts Alaric. Um, mm-hmm. I, it seems like Alisane is one of those characters that does a Nissa Nissa firewoman into an ice queen thing at the end of her life. Cause we know at the end of her life, she had the snow white hair and we also know she has blue eyes. So she ends up looking like an other at the end of things. Uh, but she seems to be still young and hot, if you will. And in fact, uh, speaking of being hot, uh, Robar Baratheon had a good observation earlier. There's a little subtext when Lord Alaric says, Oh, you should be, you know, you're going to hope you brought warmer clothes than that. You can imagine her wearing something maybe a little bit revealing or low cut or something that was making Alaric's blood boil a little bit. And he was uncomfortable enough to where like he had to say something about it. You know, it's like you can almost see maybe Alisane using uh, using that to sort of set him off, put him off balance, maybe. Or maybe that's just, you know, how she is. She's a dragon warrior princess and she doesn't need to wear that much flying around. But it seems like it'd be cold flying up there on a dragon. I don't know. I've always wondered the same thing. Like, if you're flying that high, why aren't you dressed more warmly? I don't know. As someone who thinks about this quite often, um, you definitely would have to be at least covered in, like, furs, get some kind of goggles on. Like, Danny's winter outfit, I would say, would be the closest to what would actually work. I agree. I agree. I think about dragons too much. Maybe it's one of those things where, like, you wear the you wear the parka, and then you land the dragon like a few miles away from Winterfell and change and like refresh your makeup and stuff, and then yeah. hop on the dragon and then land. Like, oh, oh yes, the, I always fly like this. You have the sexy dress underneath, and then you have the braid. So when you get off, you just like undo the braid and you take off the cloak, and you're like windswept sexy, and you're like, "What's up, Alaric? Hey, sorry." I'm oh, uh, I guess people are pointing out that the dragons actually do radiate heat. So if oh, you're clinging right. to the dragon, that you probably are actually okay. All you need is the goggles. So there it is. Or you can just close your eyes and believe in the heart of the cards. Heart yeah. of the cards for sure. By the way, what, it, what kind of dick is, is Alaric that he's like, he walks out with his sons and himself, presumably in the Stark like wolf cloaks. And he doesn't just be like, hey, give her a cloak. Yeah. Like, why, why do you point out something she can't fix? She obviously didn't come with clothes. Why don't you just offer one? Stop being a dick, man. I'm, I'm just going to go with this is a creature of George R. R. Martin's mind, and he did not think that through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or it could be a very intentional in the sense that it's meaning to show Alaric as uncomfortable, stiff, you know, and, you know, like a little bit sexist, you know? It could be a thing where we... I mean, I don't want a man thinking I'm cold and giving me his damn cloak. I mean, I'm going to throw out tons of shade at that dude. I'd be like, do you see the dragon I just rode in on? I'm fine. Thank you very much. 
that's that's my reaction. Well, it's it's possible that you're not quite the diplomat that Alisane is. It definitely did strike me less to be about Alaric finding her attractive and more that Alaric uh, was being kind of a sexist asshole. Because what else do you say to like a woman lands in your yard and you make a comment about her clothes? Like right, no, it's, it's very on a dragon, exactly. Yeah, exactly. On a dragon, like the queen of the the queen of Westeros lands on her motherfucking dragon, and you're like, <sighs> and you about warmer wow. clothes, and I'm wow. like. You're that, a dick. That no, is I, exactly I it to be, my reaction. Like I'm when, surprised like he didn't tell her to smile. <laughs> it's like when an immature smiling? boy insults the girl that he likes. That's how I looked at it. Like he doesn't, you know, like he's uncomfortable. And plus, it's very much a chauvinist thing. Like he's uncomfortable with the level of dress. So he has to make a comment like, oh, you should cover up, you know? <sighs> Men. Danry, so what's going on? We've uh, we've been chatting up a storm here. You've been, you're looks like you're doing a detailed masterpiece here uh you requested a battle so i did my best let me fix her eyes here yeah all right um her armor isn't finished but we've got the spear wife versus jungle dark there that's looking pretty fierce that's all right is battle scenes yeah i got some other stuff we didn't get to see yet see if i can make this work that was the rough sketch for it, and I think you guys might have seen this one. Yeah, that was that. That's what got me laughing in the middle of your. Yeah. No, mom, mom. Come on. I don't want to. It's no. weird. I don't want to go on the cart. <laughs> I don't want to go north of the wall. I don't want to go in the cart. I'm not dead yet. We've. Uh, I drew the panel Damn here it. for you guys. It's a oh, Matt Gore magician. Nice. Happy. <laughs> or Matt. Lot seven. Maester Mary. Hold on, go on. I'll just go, go. Go. Go back. Go back. Melanie and Maester Mary are looking especially lovely today. These are nice drawings. I tried. They're, they're not both. silly, but they're lovely, and that's that's good too. They need serious drawings, and then we have Gretchen. Oh, that's a good Gretchen. one. That's great. I like that's it. A re- that's a really good one, of Gretchen. Really good. I tried. And then, of course, we have you. It looks like I stole I stole Joe Magician's eyes and facial expression <laughs> here somehow by putting on the toad hat. I feel like <laughs> that little picture needs to be on a pizza box. Like. <laughs> I can't draw you seriously if you're wearing that hat. So you that's get, fine. You no, that's, no that's, that's, that's legit. That's legit. That's true. Mallory does normally draw me going like... Yeah, Matt normally is just like a happy, like, just a happy man. But you still you still have your goofy eyes because you're Charlie Brown, but they're just angry. <laughs> I like the five o'clock shadow. I wish I could actually get one of those. I know. Sweet. And I also <laughs> gave you like a an angled Magor chin so you could be happy with that, like a Very sharp nice. chiseled chin. The hair's so, yeah. the right right length at this point. <laughs> Look at this. I'm going full Bieber. Can go over my eyes. Oh my god! Cut your hair. Yeah, and and uh, Zazum body says. Uh, Alaric basically felt an inferiority complex next to this dragon riding woman who outranked him. And yeah, that's another way of saying it for sure. So, and he's, you know, very defensive of Winterfell. Oh, you know, I know what happens when the dragons come and blah, blah, blah. But I think the main point here is that um, George is showing us that Alaric is a stodgy character that is stubborn and kind of a little insulting and off putting. And Alisane manages to deftly 
wrap him around her finger by the end of her trip. So that's, I think that's what we're being shown here is her political skill, essentially. Right. And I think also her ability to overcome what could have been perceived as an initial insult. Um, And, and I think, um, yes, that's political skill, but it's also, um, it's, it's a kind of specific type of maneuvering. It actually reminds me of how, you know, to, in some respects, to how Tyrion responds to what Rob denying him guest right when he arrives at Winterfell. Um, he very skillfully walks through it, and eventually Rob changes his position and says, "Hey, you can't stay here, or whatever." Um, there's there's an echo of that of this being greeted rudely, but um, being able to respond to it in a way that's not only diplomatically skillful, but also um, politically intelligent. I'm dying to talk about the parallels between Sansa and how she was groomed to be this charming, politically savvy person and Alisane being that charming, politically savvy person. Don't die, Melanie Lot 7. You killed me so many... Come so close to killing me so many times today. I thought I was going to have to do this in an undead state, but... Well, luckily you're a fire priestess, and so it's really (laughs) not that much of an obstacle for you. But take it away, take it away. But yeah, so I I really like that idea that Alisane is showing us what an empowered Sansa could be like. She could be a wonderful, good ruler who is this charming, witty, savvy person who can thaw the ice from a Stannis-like figure, or uh, I think that Alaric is kind of showing us a mishmash between Stannis and Roose Bolton and maybe even Walder Frey. <laughs> but so I, I, I was also thinking about how Sansa, and I want to go back to my notes. Sorry, I'm kind of losing my track here. Um, Take your time. You have, we have all the time for you that, <laughs> that you need. We love you, Melanie. Thank you. Yeah, Sansa is a fire woman in the way, because she's got the beautiful red hair. Sansa is a fire woman, and also Alisane is a fire woman. And they have this love um, of the small folk in common as well, where Alisane is taking the 200 women and gathering them and hearing their complaints and airing their grievances, one of which I'm sure was the discussion of the first night tradition, um, which is ended at uh, is ended under the rule of Jaharis and Alisane, and um, I can't imagine what these you know two hundred ladies were talking about in that room besides first night. I mean, it's, yeah, like, it's like that like, must be their biggest oh, complaint. Oh, oh yeah, uh, oh back in the back, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All but, the hands go up. <laughs> yes, I also find it really telling that you have the Boltons who are kind of like just the jerks of the North. Um, as the one of the very few families who have decided to continue <laughs> quietly this hush hush tradition of first night, like nobody wants to talk about it, but they still do it. Um, but I like the idea that Alisane loves the small folk. She loves, she wants to hear from the small folk. And Sansa has also spoken about loving the small folk. She wants to make them love her. And um, she just has that natural charm and that. Dis- a disarming nature, it seems. Um, and I lost my train of thought. So, Danny, too. Danny, too. You and I were talking about that um, in the chat about Danny as Misa. As a very, it, plays, it plays a very similar role as 
as Alisanne and the small folk or Alisanne and small folk and potentially Sansa, if Sansa were to ever become queen, she would have that very similar role. Like it's that Misa, like mother role, love of like the the poor and the commoners and the slaves. All It's the underprivileged folks seem to like flock to these women. It's like yeah. the... Is it clear in the, is it clear that that council of 200 women includes like all the women and it's not just highborn women? No, but it does say in, in the world book, it does specifically say that Alisane had the love of the small folk. They like, they may not have been at that, at the long, at the council, but we do know that she has the love of the small folk. And you even have to look at us. I mean, thinking about Marjorie too, Marjorie as one of Sansa's teachers had the love of the small folk. It was a favor of the small folk. So that definitely is an idea that's being cycled through Alisane and Sansa and everybody. Uh, uh, Sanry, what were you going to say? Sanry, are you muted? She's muted. Definitely muted. Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Melanie and uh, Gretchen had mentioned in the um, Jesus. I had I had started well, muted. Um, but uh, basically, you guys were talking about how the small folk flock to these kind women, almost like women who are good. And I think that's where the story is leading us. Obviously, we're seeing like like um, Sansa gaining her power, hopefully, and we're seeing Danny gaining her power, and then Asha or Yara, if you want to call her her correct name. But um, I think that's really important, and I'm really glad that George is doing that. I know that's such a silly thing to say, but, like, giving those women the power back, I think that's... A... God, I'm so sick. I'm sorry. My thoughts are failing me. Basically, I agree with you. Moving on. <laughs> were, you, were you trying to talk about um, these women, these kind women, giving power back to... The small yes, folk. thank you. And basically thank saying like, no, first night's no good anymore. You, yes. we, don't, we don't need the lord of the castle yes. raping you anymore. It's like, it's like they're listening to the small folk, which is really important, which I think Sansa will eventually do. And I think um, hopefully through Fire and Blood and hopefully through more excerpts, if we get them before it, it's released, we can see that there are echoes to that to hopefully lead us there in the, in the current story. Not to embed myself too deeply in like how George critiques feudalism, but I think that there's meant to be two sides to that dynamic as well. Um, Particularly, we see Danny in her role, you know, her mother figure role is that she doesn't always live up to the expectations of the small folk. She is still a noble who doesn't always know um, and understand what the concerns of her people are. And I think the same is probably true of um, Alisane. The same is definitely true of Marjorie, who is trying to do the right thing, but very much is a political player. Um, Her ambition gets in the way. Exactly. Um, Sansa, I, I don't. I don't think we know yet quite whether, uh, quite the extent of you know how much Sansa will be loved by the small folk versus understand them. Um, Somebody was just bringing this up in the chat, if I could cut in real quick, Mr. Mary. And I would say that with Sansa, she hasn't done it yet, but what she has done is shown the ability to win over people with acts of kindness. She consistently does it 
throughout all of her arc. She's even kind to some of the Kingsguard. Um, she definitely has the ability to win people over, and she's thoughtful and kind. And I think, given the chance on a bigger stage, that's where it's probably headed. But go ahead. Well, and the the where I was going with this is, I think this conflict is brought to a head um, with the Night's Watch because the Night's Watch is in order where at this time we know there's a lot of the poor fellows that are actually small folk. Um, we know it's a place where there uh, are people that are not always of noble birth. And she does a great job, Alisane does a great job of making herself loved by the Night's Watch. Um, and so I think that's a really good um, example of how even more so than some of the other women in the story, she has um, actually listened to some of the concerns of the people. And then the, the wrench in that is that then giving land to the Night's Watch makes the Starks, the noblemen, mad. Uh, the, so I think it's a really good example. Alisane is a perfect example in this narrative of the conflicts between um, you know, being a good queen for the noblemen and being a good queen for the Night's Watch and the small folk. I think one thing that I love about, or what I hope, uh, because I really hope to see Sansa and Arya work as a team. And I think that this is an area where Arya can supplement Sansa's experience by winning over people with kindness because Arya is the sister who actually like spends a lot of time with non-noble people. She rarely ever spends time with people who are actually like lords and princes and and the highborn. She spends all of her time with, I mean, Micah with the butcher's boy. She like her friends are um Lamy and Hot Pie. They're she is actually friends with the small folk rather than well, she maybe, became a small folk in the Riverlands, right. essentially. Yeah, she became one. So I think that, that that's one of the things I love about the potential for them working together is I think that like Sansa has one perspective on it and Arya would have another. And if they are like teaming up together, then you can actually have someone who Sansa would have in Arya the perspective of someone who actually lived the experience of being a small folk and what their needs might be potentially. So I love but, that. But that means, like, I think it's great. Yeah, I know you and I are very much like, yes, sounds like Arya team up. Take yeah. down I think it'd be great. Um, but I think that Arya then like fits into this framework because Arya is yet another woman who has strong ties to the small folk. Hers are just done in a different way than, you know, any of these other women are. And I would say that the same, first of all, total agree. And I think that you can see the exact same dynamic uh, the same tension with Danny's arc. You know, she's the Misa. She saves all of these uh, people. She's consistently going out of her way um, for the small folk. Uh, like, for example, she literally walks out amongst the people who are have the pale mare um, and, you know, basically to, to feed them and to be accountable to them. She has a long fight with Barristan about whether or not to take them in. And I'm not saying that she's perfect and everything, but what I'm saying is that this tension uh, is sort of is there constantly in her arc. And you can definitely see that Danny has a desire to be loved, but she also has this, you know, the wrathful dragon side. So it's almost like she has both sides uh, coexisting in one, as opposed to the Sansa Arya, which is more of like a, a, a schism dynamic. Uh, one comparison that I also liked 
um, that I, I think somebody sent me on Twitter was they were comparing, obviously, Sansa to Alisane, but also you could compare maybe John to Jaehaerys and, ha- and what would happen. Uh, we see John obviously having problems with the Wildlings and the Night's Watch in the North getting all the fit together, which is kind of what we see in this excerpt from Jaehaerys trying to get these ancient enemies fighting over a, a, um, a shared land. And it's sort of implying that in the excerpt that if Alisane was down in King's Landing, she'd be able to solve it. If you flip that to John and Sansa, if Sansa is at the wall, if she ever makes her way up there, maybe she'll be the one to bury the hatchet that John is unable to at this time and eventually got him killed. Interesting point. Yeah. And John's definitely in that role of trying to be the conciliator. You know, he's trying to negotiate peace between enemies. And that's also a Mithras thing, the whole handshake uh, stuff. But so, guys, it is now it's two o'clock. We're just about two hours. Um, Let me I want to say basically just put it to everyone. If there's like one thing that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about that you really want to discuss that we haven't yet or something that you want to follow up. Now is the time to put that forward. And let's also check in with Sam Rickson, who's adding color to our duel, it looks like. Yeah, um, I was originally just going to do some funky colors. And then Hank Heller Jane said, Jungle's hair has to be red. And I was like, well, duh, of course it does. So, yeah. And and so basically the Jonquil dark, to, to, to dig into the uh, the name, is like a dark flower. Uh-huh. Which is really, really cool. And yes, we did get a super chat from Virginia Perkins. Thank you, Virginia. Speculate on possibility with symbolism. Liana, so this is uh, this is a theory here. Liana was a warrior woman, yes, disguised in Rhaegar's ruby armor. Whoa, what? Won the tourney at Heron Hall to cover while Rhaegar met the children of the forest on the god's eye, died from a certain hammer to the chest wound. That sounds a no. little tinfoily to me. Sorry, no. I'm not in. I mean, I'm very much attached to the idea that Rhaegar was in his armor and died the way he appeared to die. Um, that's that's just me, but it's a cool idea. I mean, Lyanna was obviously the light of the Laughing Tree, yeah, um, and so took part in that tourney. I don't think she would then go and be in Rhaegar's. I mean, the size wouldn't work, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's possible. Uh, I guess one thing that we didn't really touch on that I thought was very interesting from this excerpt is that we see the Winterfell Library described here during the time of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, and it's described as modest or small. But when we get to the current time, Tyrion considers it like a treasure trove. He's like hugely impressed by everything that's in that library, takes them with him, things he's never seen before. So I'm mm. kind of curious what happened between this time of Alisane's first visit, it may be Barth that did this. He may have came, come north with a bunch of books and donated them to the Winterfell Library or commissioned people to copy them for him. But the, it's a general rise in knowledge among the Starks um, over time, which is kind of interesting. I don't know about you guys, but every time I go into a library, I rummage in it. That's what libraries are for, is rummaging. <laughs> And um, let's see, there's a good uh, catch in the chat. Uh, my name, Isabel. Isabel says, Melantha, as in Melantha Blackwood, means dark flower. Just nice. like John Quill Dark. So there's a dark flower theme. Of course, I would identify that with Nissa Nissa, since the flower blooming, moon blood, uh, blue, you know, women's uh, 
flowering, all that, all that symbolism is heavily attached to the Nissa Nissa death and birth uh, experience. So it makes sense. I mean, the Blackwoods, like, mostly seem to be doing the weird goddess thing, especially when they marry Targaryens. Melantha Blackwood, is that one that married a Stark, Joe? Do you know? Yes. Melantha Blackwood. Yeah, um, she did. Uh, Melanie points out that Melantha also comes from the story Night Flyers. That's oh, the yeah. name of one of, of basically the protagonist of Night Flyers, I yeah. guess you would call her. Yep. But yeah, she marries, uh, I think, Sir William or Willem Stark at one point. Melantha Blackwood. So she, so yeah, it's a Melantha marries a black, um, a Stark. I did wonder why they didn't include, sorry, go ahead. I'm done. No, go ahead. Okay. I was, I was wondering why they didn't include, um, Firmathor at all. Uh, Jaehaerys Dragon, like they didn't even name him. Like they mentioned him, but they didn't name him. And I had to like double check. I was like, um, Vermithor and Silverwing are a mated pair, right? Well, I think that when we see the longer quote, like probably like the quote ends oh, right. with with her saying, oh, she was talking to Jaehaerys about how she wouldn't cross the wall. So probably as the story continues, we'll get the part where Jaehaerys arrives. It's just probably a virtue of the cut. Oh, good. Good. Thank you. I was worried. Melantha is going to be the Stark mother in the upcoming Duncan Egg novella whenever that gets to Winterfell. That's cool. The She-Wolves? The one, that's the She-Wolves of Winterfell, right? Yeah. Nice. So, and of course, obviously, you know, all the Mel, Melanie names are tied, you know, to Melisandre. So this is all fire, moon, maiden stuff, weird goddess stuff. So guys, anybody else, uh, Mary, anything you want to bring up before we... uh, one um, overarching kind of easy thing that I thought was interesting was how much this particular passage, which is being released right now before season eight, um, emphasizes the separateness of the Targaryen and Stark bloodlines. Um, it's an opportunity uh, for uh, Targaryens and Starks to potentially make a marriage alliance um, and it doesn't happen. Um, we deliberately see it happen with the Manderleys, but it, it, it doesn't. Instead, we get all of this um, emphasis on, you know, she-bears and wolf's blood and, and potential, you know, magical elements of the Starks, um, while at the same time emphasizing how separate the North is and how separate the Northern bloodlines are from the Targaryens. Um, and I think that's um, exactly the kind of thematic that George likes to to bring out or, or highlight in these kind of passages. Uh, Jeff or Brendan Beefish during our Maester Monthly episode brought that up too, where he speculated that the reason that the Starks and the Targaryens have not married for so long beyond maybe magical reasons is that the Starks for quite a long time have been thinking about getting their crown back that, that Torrin gave away. And so if you marry their family it's going to be really hard to fight a civil war against them or at least sell it internally. You keep yourself separate. Well, now they're the other. Now they're somebody else. Now you can make an enemy of them. Whereas if you're cousins, I mean, we see with like Stannis and Renly, it can happen, but it's a lot harder to create that animosity if you ever want to break off again. That's a good point. And it's, yeah, it's really very culturally. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. It's really culturally rooted in this passage, too, because you have Alaric saying, you know, my sons and daughters are going to get married in front of the godswood, not in some sept. 
So that separation is is a religious cultural thing, um, and even more so than we see in the present storyline, because we've in in the present storyline we have intermarriage between the Tullys and the Starks, um, but this is showing us that that is not the norm, and the North was historically um, really insular to any kind of Southern overture. That's a very good point. Um, there's it, it, <clears throat> it's obviously meant to be this buildup between John and Danny getting together. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, not only did the Starks not marry dragons, they didn't marry anybody from the South except for the Blackwoods occasionally until until recent history, pretty much. Well, right? And the Rices. Right, who are both, you know, essentially first men houses that keep the old ways and so on and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, both Painkiller Jane and My Name is Isabel in the chat have pointed out that um, Melantha Blackwood could have been Betha Blackwood's sister, meaning that the Starks and Targaryens could actually be cousins in the female line. Um, if they, if one of them married a Blackwood sister, then you would have you know Blackwood sisters going to both Starks and Targaryens, which I think is really interesting that they yeah, could be like very distant, like familial cousins, but like no one recognizes it or thinks about it. I mean, not to immediately go to symbolism, but I mean. I've always, ever since I read the detail that Danny had a good amount of Blackwood and Dane blood in her veins, I'm like, well, that can't be an accident. Those two houses are full of magic and mystery. Yeah. And then we see the Blackwoods getting infused into the Stark line. Yeah, we, we really, um, the Blackwoods, I mean, obviously we talk about Bloodraven a lot, but I do have a lot of Blackwood research that I've saved up that we're going to be getting into pretty soon because they've got some interesting stuff going on. That is for sure. And that's fascinating in terms of this passage because the Blackwoods are called out by name as a family that keeps the the old gods um, that has married into the South. So I think, again, it's this is exactly what George wants on the top of our mind um, when we're thinking about these these different families. It also works very well with the uh, what we were talking about earlier with the wall about how dragons and ice or the others are powered from maybe from the same basic source if you have the blackwoods or the weirwoods as they're shown both branching out into the starks and the targaryens it kind of leads you back down the same symbolic path to they're coming from the same place even though the uh, lord alaric pretends that they are different mm, that's really interesting i think i think what you're saying Mary what you bring that up is really interesting because it makes us wonder, as you say, the, the, the excerpt specifically calls out that the Blackwoods still keep the old gods. And if Aegon, Aegon the fifth married a Blackwood, does that mean that there might be Targaryens who keep the old gods at some point? Because if his wife cut the old gods and she took the old gods south with her to King's Landing, like how do people in the South, at least Targaryens or maybe people at court, know anything more about the old gods than maybe we've thought of? Because she would have taken the old gods with her because she's a black woman. So, all right, let's spin some conspiracies here, okay? So Egg and Bloodraven coexisted. Bloodraven's a little older than Egg. Um, supposedly, uh, Egg sent Bloodraven to the wall when Bloodraven killed the uh, one of the black fires, you know, basically treacherously invited him to the great council and then locked him up and killed him. And then when Egg took the throne as Aegon, the unlikely Egg on the fifth, he sent Blood Raven to the wall uh, as punishment. But of course, that wasn't really punishment. That was all part of the conspiracy. They kept in touch. 
And Egg's, you know, research into prophecy uh, was heavily influenced by a blood raven. So the fact that Egg took a Blackwood wife, could that have been directly influenced by a blood raven? Absolutely, it could have been, right, Joe? Uh, yeah, definitely. It's it's a pet theory that there needs to be more put onto it in order to be like maybe something that's considered widely accepted. Me and Aziz had a fun time talking about this on Twitter a month or so ago. But yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. And that could explain part of the reason that uh, when Blood Raven came to court, that he was so ostracized. It's not just that he's a weird albino and kind of like insular. It's also that he may follow the old gods while everyone else in the capital is following the seven. It's, it's a very easy way to make him an outsider if you want to. Yeah, but I don't know about that Blood Raven guy. He goes into the godswood and does all that creepy shit, man. What the fuck? He got yeah, that weird looking raven thing on his face. <laughs> talking about prophecy. I mean, it's a real thing in, in culture that people that don't, like, especially in communities, if you don't go to the same church, it, it's... You don't yeah. have to tell me that. Yeah. <laughs> on the outside. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Sandry, I've been leaving the screen on your uh, coloring here for about 10 oh, minutes no. or so. You let and, people watch me color a butt? Yep, totally. <laughs> I did. And uh, getting lots of compliments. I hope you're seeing those in the chat. Oh, I hope so. Yep. Yep. Seeing it. <laughs> there it is. Okay, so uh, again, uh, last call either in the chat or in the group for anything that we've... I'm sure there's more to, to go over, but anything that we want to hit? Uh, I liked the cupbearer reference that we have that um, Lord Manderley's daughter, Jessamine, acted as the queen's cupbearer. Mm. Um, I thought that was interesting. Made me think of things like Danny and her cupbearers having all of her like hostage cupbearers, uh, Arya serving as a cupbearer, um, and which led me to thinking of the idea of like the children of the forest like serving Bran like the weirwood paste. So this idea of like having a child cupbearer who's like serving you like weirwood paste or an analog of weirwood paste, whether that be wine or ale or there are several other analogs. So I just thought I thought that was like a cool little like tidbit that stood out to me. And, um, and Gretchen, uh, the cupbearer's name is Jessamine, which means jasmine, and all the children of the forest have flower, leaf, or nature names. Yep, yep. So, I don't know if that was on, if that feels intentional to me, but I'd have to look more into it. I just thought that was cool. That is really cool. It's a good, uh, good um, callback, like you said. I guess one can of worms that we haven't really opened is why do the Manderleys have a wildling? Because <laughs> we're still at the point where wildlings are considered the enemy. And well, it's so captured by the Night's Watch. So you you think about the Night's Watch rangers maybe getting into a battle, killing a spear wife, and then at the end there's like a four-year-old girl. And they're like, oh, God, there's a girl. And they don't kill her. They take her back and... They're like, well, we can't keep her at the wall, so they foster out, you know, to to a house in the north. That's probably all right. So maybe she's more like an OSHA type character. Yeah, something like it. It specifically said like fostered, and that's I think what set me off. I was like, fostered is a little bit different than like I wouldn't describe OSHA as being fostered. No, she was. Yeah, well, she was taken prisoner. I would guess that this happened when she was young because you foster children. So that to me says the Night's Watch somehow ended up with her on their hands, didn't know what to do with her, 
I would guess that they killed her mother, who was a spear wife probably, and ended up with this baby and no wildling around to take it. And so they're like, well, somebody was kind-hearted and didn't want to just kill the baby. And so instead, I don't know, maybe there was a Manderly emissary. Sorry, what? I said kudos to whoever had a kind heart there then, if that, yeah. if that was the situation. That, that kudos person reminds me of Sam, right? That's, yeah. that, that was my thought is like, well, how would you get a foster wildling child? Well, you know, maybe you have someone with a, a heart like Samuel Tarley um, that decides this, this baby needs, needs somewhere to go and, and doesn't want to just throw them off the top of the wall. So. Mm. I was also thinking about the fact that this uh, this child was fostered, like you like we were talking about versus Osha. Perhaps this wasn't just some random spearwise child. Maybe this was the child of a chieftain or uh, some sort of uh, Magnar from from Fen or somebody from Skagos, where they they took him as a hostage. That's usually what fostering in this sense would be. So perhaps this was like this child was supposed to be a a Theon like character, where they're holding him for good behavior. Yeah, I wonder if we'll get more of her story uh, in Fire and Blood. That would be really cool. There's also so. like a, a connection there with John too. Like when John finds out that Egret is a girl, he doesn't want to kill her. Like that's the point. It was like, and if I could imagine that if Egret had been even younger, if she had been say four or five, like a small child, that I could see John like Sam being like. Ah, it's a baby. I don't want to kill the little girl. I'll find someone to take care of her. Like, yeah, rather than just killing her the way anyone else in the Night's Watch would have. But yeah, you got to have a squishy heart person. One other possibility I just thought of. Um, The Manderleys follow the Seven. So perhaps the Watch doesn't take women. So maybe she was supposed to be given over to the Silent Sisters. And instead it was like an Arya situation. And she's like, no, nah, we're just going to train her as like a warrior person because that's what her natural um, ability, her natural interests are. Yeah. It, uh, it, go ahead. Oh, it could also just be a hint that um, the the way hatred towards the wildlings is presented may be a little bit um, overblown, and the further you go back in history, the more intermingling there's going to be between wildlings and the north. Um, this That's probably I mean. isn't far. The, the real, the true story about how much hatred, yeah. how much othering was happening. Yeah, you get those hints at Castle Black when somebody's right, maybe it's half hand who's like, actually, there's a lot of trade that goes on, you know, between the Wildlings and the brothers. And I mean, this is exactly the kind of like offhand mention that would indicate to us not to trust the official history. Um, so that was that was kind of my first thought on reading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the Manderleys having such a huge family is simply redoubling their Garth symbolism. Uh, Manderley is a knight of the green hand. Uh, so they are basically a Garth person that's been displaced and many of them end up looking uh, corpse-like, and so they end up with a sort of dead Garth. And of course, you remember the the one-eyed jailer Garth uh, that that Davos meets in in the the Wolf's Den. So we've we've been over that before, but just it's just Martin being consistent. You see, Wyman Wyman is a Garth figure, uh, and here we are with the Mandalees with this huge abundant family. So very Garth-like. And uh, yeah, there it is. Uh, so why don't you zoom us out? Oh, nice, you're putting some red highlights on the armor. I like that. Yeah. 
That looks pretty got, sick. This is like base coloring level before mm-hmm. I start shading and stuff. Yeah, it always really starts taking off when you add this, those second layers of color. The lights and the shadows. Like By the way, did sword. you ever release the Grey King uh, picture? No, it's not done yet. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah. I've been waiting for that one. It will I just be had, released. I Go just ahead, had a thought about the red shadow as I was looking at um, Sandry's drawing because she's because Jonquil Dark is called the Scarlet Shadow, and you could talk about Melisandre's shadow babies being shadows of a red woman, and so being red shadows, um, shadows of red. Um, so I think Melisandre. Melisandre's red shadow one time. Oh, right. Yeah. I was like, I thought there was a red shadow at some point. So yeah, Mel is a red shadow. Here's the Scarlet Shadow, who's a uh, an assassin type figure. So uh, acting as sworn shield to a queen. Oh, oh. How many yeah. children did the Scarlet Shadow have? For me. I don't know. Like, <laughs> but you know how Martin always says, oh, how many children did Scarlet O'Hara have to talk about? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many how many children she had. Sorry. Never mind. Keep going. That's great. No, that was all I was saying was like, I think that there's definitely a play going on there with Scarlet. The fact that like the queen's sworn shield is named both dark flower and is a scarlet or red shadow. There's a lot of symbolism going on with Jonquil. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's, It's a ton of Melisandre fire moon symbolism. I mean, it's pretty recognizable. Yes. I love how you've given the, uh, the wildling girl sort of a, she looks like a, a fighting version of um, Val. Val, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. a little, little bit of a Val vibe. Yeah, that's cool. We like it. We approve. Thank you. And you just gave the Scarlet Shadow a Scarlet Shadow. Yay! Uh-huh. She's got a great shadow because we don't know more much about her yet. The so guys, if you don't follow at San Rixian on Twitter, uh, you're missing out. If you're on Twitter, it's a great way to keep up with all these drawings that she does during the live stream she always posts them on twitter in the day or two following not to put like any pressure on you Zanry, but no, that's, sooner, that's true. sooner or later they pop up on there so that's always a very good follow if you're on twitter at sanrixian so guys let's go ahead and go through and give your links and your twitter tags and uh, let's say goodbye so uh let me uh so it's not so disorganized i'll call you out one at a time gretchen i wasn't ready um oh, matt that was fine my i was okay muted. Not not Matt, Gretchen. Uh, so yeah, you can find me on Twitter as at GNLSWriter, all one word. On YouTube, my channel is just my name here right now in the chat, which is Baal the Bard. And you can also find um, like the written versions of all of the essays that I have up on YouTube at my um, website, which is GNLS.com. Awesome. Matt, go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Joe Magician Forty Two. You can find me at my YouTube channel, uh, YouTube.com slash C slash Joe Magician. I think that's it. Uh, you can also find me on the Maester Monthly podcast. We just put out an episode uh, about this Fire and Blood excerpt that was very different. So we we talked more about the um, less about symbolism and magic and more about what meant for the story and that kind of stuff. Um, and what else? Uh, find me on Watchers on the Wall, where I'm a feature writer. And let's see here. The what? Patreon. Patreon. Oh, yeah. My Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Joe Magician. 
my, I can't believe I have so many of these things. My blog, um, clankingdragging.wordpress.com and always on the Song of Ice and Fireboard where I am a moderator. Yeah, it's amazing how how these things like branch out. You're like, ah, ah, social, uh, answer the thing with the, uh. I've been using if this, if that, that, uh, that website to try and make it so it's all more automated and you can find things in central places. I'm That's working smart. on it. Very interesting. Uh, Melanie Lot 7. Well, my moniker says it all. Um, you can find me on YouTube. Um, just type in Melanie Lot 7 and I pop up. And I do have a WordPress site, which you can also search by just typing Melanie Lot 7 and WordPress into Google. I can't remember the name of the site right now because I'm getting pretty tired. And uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Melanie at Melanie Lot 7 and 7 is a number on my Twitter handle. Nice. And Maester Mary? Is muted. Maester Mary is muted. Uh, on Twitter, I am at Maester Mary. Mary spelled M-E-R-R-Y like Christmas. Um, my YouTube channel is up from under Winterfell. I also have a WordPress that is up from under Winterfell. That's the places that I am at on the World Wide Webs. <laughs> nice. And uh, once again, if you are into Faceless Men and Bravos, then you absolutely will die for Mary's videos. And so there you go. Um, you won't die. You might like them. I promise you won't die. No, you might die. That's the whole thing about the Faceless Men. You might die. Somebody will then peel your face off your corpse and give it to some homeless girl 20 years in the future so she can pretend like she's you and relive your darkest memories. Thanks, George. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, that stuff's creepy. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of creepy stuff. George really wants to be a horror writer, but he's like, you know, likes fantasy too. So I really enjoy that intersection of his stuff. But just to give you an idea of what I've got coming up next, um, I am hard at work writing the next two Weirwood Compendium episodes, which are primarily focused around Daenerys and all of her various Green Seer, Green Sea activities, which is like all of her chapters. Uh, it's all the stuff in the Dothraki Sea. It's uh, when she sails the Jade Sea to Karth. Um, there's just a ton. Her last chapter, uh, back in the Dothraki Sea, once again, where she eats green berries and trips and sees lots of visions. Definitely no green seer symbolism there. So, um, yes, those will be coming pretty soon. Uh, as far as the schedule goes, next week, um, I'm, I think it would be a good week to do our Under the Sea Roundtable, where we'll probably have a lot of the same folks that are here today. Um, definitely Amanda will be there and we will go through all the patch face riddles and try to decipher them, uh, you know, according to uh, the under the sea metaphors. Um, so and then in two weeks, uh, we're going to do part two of the religion panel with San Rixian and Gretchen and Brendan Beefish. I think San Rixian. No, no, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, and then we're going to, uh, that's probably after that will be the next Weirwood Compendium episodes. Um, so yeah, Religion 2.0. So basically, yeah, that was on the Between Two Weirwoods channel. If you didn't uh, catch that, uh, we did part one. We only got through like a third of our notes. St. Rixian was out of town and heroically trying to beam in via remote technology that was failing her. Uh, of course, you know, Murphy's Law. So we are going to pick it right back up where we started. Uh, we basically only did the Faith of the Seven and like 10 minutes on R'hllor. 
we have more to talk about with Relore, the old gods, and meta over overall stuff. So that'll be in two weeks on the Between Two Weirdwoods channel. Uh, and yes, so let's now go back to Sanrixian and check in on the art. Was giving you as long as possible to get. Oh, thank you, buddy. So you're on to the spear now. So yeah, z- zoom out where you are and, and let us see uh, where it's how it's looking. Also, tell I'll tell tell people where they can find you. Yeah, um, I'm Sanrixian, like Lucy mentioned. Thank you. I'm at Sanrixian on Twitter. My um, and my helpful friends and mods are dropping all the links for me in the chat. It's sandrixian.com for my web store. If you just want to look at my art, I have a huge, huge, huge library of um, A Song of Ice and Fire art. That's malloridorn.com. And I'll probably be on the panels Lucy mentioned. And um, like I said, um, I'll be announcing whenever I have new merch, like the coloring books, the inkthologies, and the shirts. So that's all coming up for me. Thank you. Ooh, I could go rummage in your library. <laughs> you definitely could. Yeah, dude, that is, Sandra, that is some pretty exciting stuff. I basically want all of that. I think <laughs> I think we all want it all. I mean, that sounds, the coloring book is, I mean, that's a must-have. Definitely going to need the coloring book. There's going to be a lot. It's um, I'm aiming for like a good 25 pages, and I'm going to pack it all together so you guys can calmly you know, like color and fill in things. I think people like that for the coloring books. I had a blast uh, coloring in the Weirwood Submarine a few weeks ago. That was fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are you ever going to sell the Sansephony print as a print? Yes. That's also I, on I the list. Of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, dude. no, no. It's just, uh, just getting back from vacation. And then, as you guys know, I got this giant cold. And I'm pissed off because I don't like being set back from working. So, it's uh, yeah, it's definitely one of those things. And also... I'm very close to 666 followers on Twitter. So whoever gets that and screenshots it and sends it to me gets a free, I think, Targaryen and Direwolf sticker pack is what I promised. Nice, so, nice. And speaking of, tar- speaking of, I just show you my shirt here. <clears throat> oh my gosh, it's a Targaryen. Well, because I'm <clears throat> Fly Alaric of Winterfell Nibbity, bastard child of Alysanne Targaryen and Alaric Stark. So Perfect. My inner generic shipper approves. Mm-hmm. Excellent. <laughs> I actually like that part of the story where it said that Alisane has 13 kids. Well, how many does Shaharis have? Mm. Alisane might have 14 too. You never yeah. know. All right. Well, that's definitely, you can see how much fun we have with this little excerpt of Fire and Blood. It's literally like eight minutes worth of reading uh, and, you know, tons to talk about. So, you fire and blood. I mean, I don't know how big it's going to be, but if it's like a book thickness with just more of this stuff, uh, yes, it sounds like there'll be some symbolism in there. Just some little. I'm, tr- I'm trying to imagine what's going to happen once T Wow comes out and where all of us are just literally going to melt down and we're going to have to have like a separate like chat. Dude, when I when I read Dance with Dragons, I had hadn't watched the TV show, hadn't been a part of the fandom, never been to Westeros.org. Wow, it's going to be a different experience. Yeah, I'm taking off work for like just like a week. Basically, bye guys. Sorry, I'm going to be busy for. Uh, I'm going to lay in bed and read a book for like a while. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to clean all the things. <laughs> like, <laughs> audiobook, just be like, no, no, it could be cleaner. It could be cleaner. 
<laughs> yeah, it's all manicured and landscaped. No, it's going to be it's going to be insane. My big decision is: do I just read the book or instantly word search for Comet? Uh, Oh, Painkiller Jane just said that maybe that Gail is actually Alaric and uh, Alisane's yeah. child. Yes! I love it! That's I know, awesome. right? It was Alisane's <laughs> favorite child, wasn't she? Yeah, mm. she's, the, what, she's called the Winter Child. The Winter Child! Oh, dude, this is I'm pretty not, from the Ice Dragon. Boom. Nice. I'm not, I'm not saying that Painkiller Jane just called it, but Painkiller Jane so. just called it. <laughs> Painkiller Jane, so. if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to come over to your house and and kidnap you and put you on camera. You've got to get on one of these live streams, dude. Painkiller Jane is the best. Yes, absolutely. One time. No, it's cool. Not everybody likes coming on camera. That's cool. It is. It's a different thing. But Painkiller Jane is brilliant, and we all live in awe of your greatness. That is for sure. A frequently a frequent contributor to mythical astronomy. That is for sure. Anyways, okay. So thanks to all my guests. Um, you guys have been great, as I knew you would be, of course. And uh, we'll I'll make an announcement about the under the sea panel, but obviously uh, that'll be a fun one that we all look forward to. So thanks, guys. Enjoy your Sunday, and uh, yeah, bye bye. Just Bye. another starry wisdom Sunday.